Heavy Cardboard, episode 139, Brass Birmingham. Coming to you from a charming canal side pub in Wolverhampton or, you know, Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Martin. All right. So welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thank you. Uh, folks, I know you from the live stream, at least on the board game side of things, but I would argue that you are far more known outside the board gaming world for what it is you do as your day job. So tell folks about you and the whole nine yards. Well, basically, I'm an author and speaker to some extent, but mostly author on software development. So I've written several books on software development that if you're a serious programmer or whatever, you likely have come across. And then I give talks and things to support that. And I have a website martinfowler.com, which is actually where I do most of my writing these days. But that's all software-oriented stuff except for one page on board games. And that's how you and I got to know each other is through board games. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I uh, one time I started lo- looking for board game podcasts, and I uh, tried a few, but I really started to like this one out of Denver that uh, went into more interesting games and went into them at a level of depth and, and structure to the conversation that I really liked. And so I became a patron. And then you've decided to move next door, which was wonderful as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I get to play a lot more games this way. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty funny because when I did end up moving here, you were like, oh, this this works out really well. You're about seven minutes away. And I was like, really? And then, yeah, yeah, actually about seven minutes away. And we've become good friends yep. since then. And um, in fact, I went and picked you up for yep. uh, visited uh, visited with uh, you and the missus and then came up to record. So thanks for joining us. Today. Yeah. I got picked up by the heavy cardboard limo. So uh, right, right, nice. right. Yeah, the uh, the real nice uh, 2009 Honda CRV that is the heavy cardboard limo. Yes. So tell folks about uh, gaming history as far as um, what got you into the hobby, as well as what are some of your favorite games. And okay. Well, I got into the hobby quite a while ago because I'm older. So um, I played games a fair amount as a kid. But what really, when I played my, what I would say, my first heavy game would be in the mid-70s when I went to secondary school, which is when I'm about 12. And I met uh, another fellow at the school called Richard, and he introduced me to diplomacy. And we got a game group together and played diplomacy, played whatever else was around at the time but wasn't really very much in the mid-70s. There's a game called Kingmaker, which was a um, pretty big deal in those days. Um, we got into various war games. I got a subscription with Strategy and Tactics, which was this uh, war game magazine um, in those days. And then we discovered this curious little game called Dungeons & Dragons. And that became, I would say, my dominant gaming experience after that. Um, I started a D&D campaign when I went to university. Um, ran it for a few years and handed over to another guy called Martin, um, who now lives in Germany, and he ran it for nearly, so it nearly got to its 20th anniversary. Wow. Um, and that was a really long game. And Richard and I are still good friends. Every time I go over to England, I game with him and his wife and another um, schoolmate, um, David, and his wife, I uh, game with them. So, and But when I left England in the 90s, I stopped gaming because 
my gaming friends are all back in England and I didn't do any gaming until Martin from Germany came over in the mid-2000s with a copy of Settlers of Catan. And I liked it. And above all, Cindy, my wife, liked it. <laughs> and then we got into games. We got Power Grid and Carcassonne and Puerto Rico and Tikal, games like that. And I gradually got, you know, a couple of games a year. And uh, But a couple of years ago, and I'm waffling on a good bit here, but a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to get a bit more into it. So I joined the North, Jaw, North, not North, Jaw, North Shore Gamers, which are um, based up in Beverly. And they do a gaming day um, once a month in Beverly Library. And more importantly, they do a once a week um, heavy game day on Thursday nights at uh, the Castle, which is this really good board game cafe up in Beverly. But you want to pop in sometime and, and try out. I and, think that'd be fun for us to go up there and surprise yeah. them one night. That'd be a lot of fun. Well, we don't surprise them because it's it's one of these things where it's prearranged. You dis- oh, on enough. a Monday, you say who's going, and then you sign up which game you're going to play, um, and you get everything agreed usually by Tuesday, and then everybody has to read the rules and get familiar with the game so that at six o'clock sharp you can start playing. This is glorious. Oh yeah. That is wonderful because the the worst game in the world is the what are we going to yeah. play game? I hate that game. So wow, yeah, okay. Greg does a great job of organizing it so that we're it's always ready to go. We we need to okay plan on doing this here in the near future. Then hopefully, okay, yeah. I mean that, that would be good to do. I mean because I haven't I don't go to see them anymore because I'm down here streaming. But uh, and it's a much shorter drive. It um, is. But sorry guys, everybody up in the Beverly group, I apologize <laughs> that we stole Martin. Sorry. <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, so that's basically my gaming history, and uh, I have a pitifully tiny collection by most people I know standard. So I only got about fifty games, but I that, only get a couple that, of no, years. No, 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 no. There's nothing wrong. That's not pitiful. Not yeah, and I was saying it with deliberate irony because okay. I mean it's easy to get overly involved in collecting games, that, and I understand why because I mean they call to me too. But I have this very strict rule that I do not want to buy another game until the last game I've bought. I have played enough that I'm really familiar with it, which is usually about a dozen or so plays, and that has stood me very well because it means like it can tr- stops me from getting games. The acquisition uh, disorder is yeah. strong, but you've been able to curtail it. Fight it back! Fight it back! <laughs> <laughs> So what are some of your uh, favorite games other than, you know, maybe the one we're going to talk about? Yeah. Well, I have this little mental thing where I say to myself, if I'm going on a desert island with uh, a bunch of like-minded gamers for a couple of months and I'm allowed six games in the pack, which six do I take? And this is a good question to ask people generally, I think, because it's not necessarily the six favorite games. What makes a good six? I I think that's a fair point. Yeah. So... My uh, five of those six have been fairly stable for a while. So Keyflower, I love the combination of worker placement and auction in that game. It just, oh. As do I, yes. Yep. I think that's a phenomenal game. Then Steam, Age of Steam, I see them as basically the same game. Um, I, I love building routes across maps and the whole essence of that. And I... So Steam's a big pit for me. Um, Race to the Galaxy, because you need a nice filler. And once everybody knows how to play it, Race to the Galaxy is a wonderful filler. It's just that it takes an hour to teach and 20 minutes to play. (laughs) And then two of the lighter games, because you need some lighter games. Uh, I like Dominion, because I love the variety of when you've got a few expansions and you've just got so much difference within that game. I look for how that works. And Ra, because you need a Knizia. And uh, I like the tension of rights close between rare and modern art, but 
Raw just about gets it. For what it's worth, I, I would vote Raw as well as that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I love, 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 love Raw. I yeah. think it's a phenomenal design and a really fun game. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and it's a great game to teach new people as well because it's just so simple and yet it quickly gets interesting. But you notice I only said five. And uh, if you asked me this question a year ago, then I'd go, well, I need something heavy, something thematic, something with a bit of depth. And my, I've got two challenges and I can't choose between them. And those are both Lacerda games, The Gallerist and Lisboa. Both really lovely games, but could I choose between them? And then coming any moment... Brass, Lancashire and Birmingham, would they make this, that sixth slot? And I guess at the end of this podcast, we'll reveal um, who got in the sixth <laughs> slot. All right. So there you go. So, yeah, thanks. I This was actually your idea. You had said uh, you would, you know, I, I, I've offered up uh, for the guest hosting on the podcast to folks and you said you were interested and we put together a list of games that we thought would be good. And you brought this up, especially with Brass Birmingham having recently, or well, sort of recently, winning the Golden Elephant Award for 2018. Kind of makes sense that we should probably review it at some point. And yeah, this, absolutely. This being one of the games that was in the running for that Desert Island game for you, uh, kind of made sense to have you on the show. So thanks for coming on. Yes, and uh, as I will explain, the connections are deeper even than that. <laughs> and there you go. All right, so what all's been going on with me? Uh, ankle continues to heal, went to the VA, had a follow-up. I'm out of the walking boot and into an ankle brace. Uh, the doc said that uh, the fracture is healing and the ligaments are going to take a little bit longer to heal. That's why it's still sore, but at least I'm able to wear a second shoe for the first time in uh, the better part of two months. So Yay that's for two shoes. Seriously. But although I will say, recently went to Grand Con. It was kind of nice only having to pack one shoe. <laughs> <laughs> it saves room, right? Um, I also know that you are... Uh, you you enjoy making cocktails and enjoying the occasional cocktail. Indeed. Uh, what are some of your favorite cocktails? I'm, I'm, I don't mean this to turn into an interview because I'm going to give my <laughs> own opinions on some of these as well. But what are some of your favorite uh, cocktails either to uh, enjoy or to make? Well, top of the list, that the first cocktail I'll tend to serve somebody when I come to the house, once I have a house again, um, is the great Boston cocktail called Prospect Park which doesn't sound like it ought to be the name of a Boston cocktail, right? But it was invented at Eastern Standard, which we need to go to at some point, which is this really great bar near Fenway, but not really a Fenway bar. Um, and uh, they're one of the top places of the cocktail uh, renaissance in in Boston. Awesome. I, and yes. they invented this drink there. It's um, one and a half parts rye. Uh, well, sorry, one and a half ounces rye, one and a half ounces of Aperol, then half an ounce of maraschino, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, and some bitters. So it's kind of like a Manhattan, but with this big boost of Aperol in there. Uh, okay, I'm not I'm not super well versed on cocktails, so Aperol. Aperol. It's a uh, Italian um, aperitif. Have you you've come across Campari? Yes. Yes. Okay. So Aperol is similar, but much less bitter. Um, it's uh, the, one of the best ways to drink Aperol is a mixture of Aperol, sparkling wine, and some soda water, the Aperol spritz. And that's a, that's a spring drink. You know, That's what you celebrate spring with. Um, but this uses it in the cocktail, and it just results in this lovely 
beautiful set of flavors. And kind of refreshing get, yeah. get, makes the cocktail a little bit more. All right. Yeah. So that's that's one favorite. Another Boston one I, I tend to serve people is the Periodista, um, which uses a combination of dark rum, um, lime juice, um, and there's I can't remember what else goes in it. Um, oh, uh, it's a, there's also a mix of triple sec and apricot liqueur. Just enough apricot to give it that little bit of interesting flavor with a dark rum. Um, and that's a really interesting cocktail because um, this, uh, there's, there's a guy on the internet, um, some random person on the internet a while ago. During the cocktail renaissance, that cocktail was available in every Boston bar. You'd go to every place, and you just thought it was a standard drink, kind of like a Manhattan or whatever. And you, yeah, you see periodistas. He went to New York for the weekend. No bar knew about it, and he thought, "Well, that's a bit odd." Came back to Boston. Everybody's got it. Went out to San Francisco. Went to a bar that's you know one a really big cocktail place in San Francisco. Never heard of it. Tried looking it up. Couldn't find it. So he then went on this, and it's it's he's got a website called Tales of the Periodista, where he tries to figure out. Where did this cocktail come from and why did it get to be so popular in Boston? So he goes to every one of the, 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 the leading cocktail bars at the time. We're talking about 10 years ago in Boston area. Each one, of course, has a different recipe for of the course, period. Of course, how, their house take yep. on that drink, right? And he tries to figure out where the hell it came from. And I won't spoil the story, not that it's really got an ending, but it's just fascinating how this drink can kind of appear and become really, really common, and no one knows where the hell it came from in a very short period of time. So with sort of your influence and uh, the it being a couple of rough weeks here at HCHQ on a personal basis, but we're not going to get into that, but everything moving, progressing as it should. Uh, one night uh, after a long day, Jess recommended, Hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we have a cocktail and have dinner and then watch breakfast at Tiffany's? I'd never seen breakfast at Tiffany's. I obviously have, I know the song from the nineties, but, and I'm familiar with the movie, but, that's it. I'd never seen it, anything like that. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I started to try and look up kind of uh, cocktails because I was under the impression that this took place in the 20s or 30s. It doesn't take place in the 60s, I believe it is. And so I was looking for cocktails that would be kind of a theme that went along with it. One of which was the, uh, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast, I believe it's called the Jack Rose made with Applejack, which is arguably the first true uh, American liqueur or American uh, just uh, spirit that was made here hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Well, let's not go back too many because the country's not that old, but you, I digress. So well, I've uh, got an even bigger digression on Applejack for you. Oh, go for it. Go. Yeah. So there's a, an, I, I'm not, I'm didn't wasn't brought up around here, but apparently a common story that's told, a historical story that's told to kids is Johnny Appleseed, right? Who goes around planting apple trees into the frontier and all the rest of it. What's not told to kids is that these apple trees would be for Applejack, because wild apple seeds do not come back true. Most apples are bitter. You can only use them for Applejack. So <laughs> that's the bit that they don't tell the kids. <laughs> Interesting. I know I didn't know that. So the Jack Rose, uh, I made a kind of an a a riff on the Jack Rose. Now I didn't have a shaker in the house because 
I don't drink that often, to be honest with you. So I actually made it kind of into a blended, almost like a uh, like a frozen daiquiri type version of it. But a Jack Rose uses Applejack, uh, grenadine, or or uh, maraschino. Um, which I'll be honest, I didn't go the extra mile and make my own grenadine. So I apologize. I did have some of that grenadine that you don't speak about in uh mixed company, uh, and, and la and some lime juice it was delicious, uh, dangerously delicious in a sense that you could drink that whole cocktail, have five or six of them and not realize what happened. Why am I drunk? Wow. I didn't realize that that type thing also made a, uh, a whiskey smash, which is very simple. It's uh, with some uh, muddled mint leaves, uh, two ounces of some sort of whiskey. I used bullet, as it were, and some lime juice and some simple syrup. Turned out delicious, and served that with uh, with a sprig of uh, sprig of mint and a little and a slice of lime as well. So I, I definitely am not a a. Uh, home bartender but so what i did is i went looking on youtube for cocktails and there are a surprisingly and it probably shouldn't be surprising but a surprising number of folks that run channels based on making cocktails and i would argue that one of my all-time favorites and by all-time i mean for the last few weeks is a channel called how to drink this dude records a number of shows in a single day by the end of them, he's feeling no pain, <laughs> and it, it's really well produced. It's really well. It it's hysterical, and it's it's entertaining, and the history of it, and the the cine, uh, cinematography, I think, is a is actually a, a true way to describe this. It's done really well. Really recommend that. And he uh, there's one where he shows the origin of the old fashioned and how it's gone through various mm. iterations over the last, I don't know. 130 years, 140 years, whatever it is. But yeah, I found it really interesting. And I'll be honest, I'm not a big drinker. I've been known to drink the occasional cocktail as well as have some uh, some wine. But we're, we're starting to do cocktail Thursdays now. Uh, or I'm sorry, cocktail Wednesdays here at the house. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun to experiment with this and I don't have a huge amount of liquor here in the house, but yeah, it's been an enjoyable process. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking forward to when you'll be able to when our house will be in a condition that you can actually come over and experience some uh, cocktails at our place. Right, because you're currently uh, undergoing renovations at your major renovations. Yes, so it's uh, a bit scary, <laughs> but it'll be worth it in the end. It will be worth it. <laughs> I keep telling myself that. Right. So, uh, poker update here it has been a bit of a mixed bag lately for me. Um, I've reaffirmed that the biggest challenge in poker is keeping myself in control. I found that I am definitely far from the best player around. I am usually one of the best players at my table, almost usually, especially because I am playing one, three right now at the encore. But even if I'm not, there's enough tables to where I can just move to a new table. So with good table selection, there are only two ways that I lose in poker. I have found one is if I get unlucky in the short term, that happens. Um, I had ace King beat my aces in a, you know, $600 pot the other day. 
it happens. It's going to happen. Just unlucky, whatever. Long term, that'll end up making me money. So I'm not worried about that. And the other one is myself. And with that latter part being the most frustrating part that if I get impatient or I just feel the urge to try and outplay somebody when it's completely unnecessary, I get myself into trouble and I end up putting myself in bad positions and not doing as well as I should. So I think it's been a really interesting self-discovery process or rediscovery of this that I have learned that, and I have little, I talk to myself in my head, like, no, don't do this. Wait until you're in position. If you feel the need to do whatever it is. And I have found that the little, it's almost like the devil and the angel on my two shoulders. (laughs) And when I listen to the angel side, I have spectacular results. When I listen to the other side, sometimes I do. More often than not, I don't. So it, it's it's all about trusting myself and knowing and keeping myself in control and not getting frustrated. And when I do, good things happen. So yeah, it's it's been an interesting self discovery uh, process with that. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got a good friend of mine in the software industry has uh, gotten into poker recently, and he's got a very interestingly analytic mind, both on the numbers and on people, especially people. Um, and so I'm fascinated to uh, talk it over with him at some point. Yeah, it's it's it really is a, I mean, it's math-based, obviously, but it's also very much about feel and reading the situation. And it, it's less about tells and, you know, specific situation, like, oh, he scratched his mm-hmm. nose. Does, no, it, it's less about that. And it's more about deducing the story that people are telling by their actions. And to me, that is the fascinating and wonderful part of mm-hmm. poker. And, you know, people are taking it serious because it's for money and money tends to make people take it seriously. So, yeah. And. Yeah, you guys know the history of me being a former professional poker player. So, yeah, that love is still there. But, man, do I hate myself. And there there are times where I'll be driving home thinking, why am I such an idiot? Why did I do that? Why did I put myself in these positions? And angry at myself because it's just unnecessary. There's no need for me to do the things that I sometimes do. Which it's, yeah, it's just that self-discovery. And then once, now that I've discovered it, it's how to rein that in and how to keep that under control. Well, it's learning about yourself and learning about, I mean, we all, everybody has to deal with the the weirdnesses inside yourself. You, I kind of look outside of myself at the at me at a lot and um, learning how better to handle that. That's part of learning. And, you know, as long as you're not paying a fortune to do so for your poker, <laughs> which I gather you're not, you're no, making I'm money not. on it, right. then, hey, it's it's got to be an interesting and worthwhile experience. It is. And it's, it's not always relaxing. So Jess likes to say that I have a good hobby that makes me money, which is great. But it's not always a relaxing hobby, but it is a it's something that I'm passionate about and something I enjoy. If I want to relax, I'll read a book or take a nap. But if I want to do something that still stimulates the brain and still scratches itches that board games fills, but not entirely, then I go and play poker. So it's it's a nice hobby and it's a good way to get away from the show when I need mm. to as well. 
Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention. So some of this personal stuff that's been going on that I don't want to go into uh, detail about that involves Jess and child custody and all this stuff. But I found myself in downtown Boston yesterday for a good part of the day due to some things that are going on. And I had a few hours to kill. So I walked around downtown and I came upon the Granary Cemetery, which it's just a cemetery in the middle of a bunch of buildings that is not really described. It's innocuous, I think, is a good way to put it. And I happened to, it it was busy when I walked by there, and I was like, oh, I wonder what this is. And it has a a plaque there, and a lot of the signers of the Declaration of Independence are buried there, um, as well as, so Paul Revere is buried there, uh, Thomas Paine, John Hancock, uh, the Mother Goose uh, lady that uh, they think the Mother Goose... uh, uh, nursery rhymes or nursery tale, whatever, where uh, were, were came from uh, is there, as well as some of the victims of the Boston Massacre from back in 1770-ish yeah. there, uh, as well as um, Ben Franklin's parents are there. And wow, I... I haven't really done a whole lot of touristy stuff uh, or historic stuff so far since I've been in Boston and I just walked around. That was fascinating. That was, I mean, I, I, I'm sitting here on the curb right next to Paul Revere's grave, which wow. And Mm. John Hancock and like these people that are from the history books that, Oh wow, this is, you know, 20, 30 minutes from where I live now. That was just, that was a cool experience. And then I went and had lunch at a place that says it's the number one most uh, best sandwich in the world. I don't know if that's true, but I will say it is definitely in the running as the greatest sandwich I've ever had in my life. It's a place called, I think it was Sam LaGrasse's. Uh, it was packed. <laughs> I, I went about lunchtime and this is around a bunch of uh, legal offices and just downtown. So it's every place is packed this time of day, but this place was packed and i ended up having a uh, pastrami and corned beef sandwich had some coleslaw on it and a side of potato salad and i wanted to cry it was so good (laughs) everything was made in-house including the bread the corned beef the pastrami the whole nine yards and it was just i'm glad i don't live closer because i would eat there every day of my life and it would not be healthy but my lord was that an amazing sandwich hmm. can't recommend that enough so sam lagrasa is downtown check that out if you guys are ever down there will do i haven't uh haven't even heard of it so but well, uh, and you turned us on to turner seafood exactly which that is has some amazing seafood but the clam chowder is phenomenal yeah. i mean oh yeah people ask me they'll ask me on twitter oh hey we're coming up da 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 what should we do Freedom Trail is a good recommendation. There's a ton of historical stuff here. The museums are great, but definitely if you eat seafood, eat seafood in Boston, in the Boston area or in New England. Uh, it's as good as it gets. Oh, yeah. that's I, I love the seafood here. It's really lovely. All right. So in theory, this is supposed to be a board game podcast. <laughs> so that said, what you've been playing? Well, yesterday I was here in this studio um, playing uh, Quebec 
um, which was a really interesting game. I, I sum it up to when I'm summing it up to anyone as saying, if someone had told me this was a Knizia game from the turn of the century during his kind of peak period when he was pumping them all out, I would totally believe it because it was that good and had a very similar style. You've got a lot of interesting mechanisms going on. The scoring is really intriguing. There's a lot to think about. And yet the rules are really fairly simple and straightforward. It was a really lovely game. It went really well. I've played this a number of times way back uh, years ago, and I'm pretty sure at some point we've talked about it on the podcast over the course of the last 138 episodes here, but it'd been a number of years since I'd played it. And so I was like, you know what? I'd like to play it to see if it holds up and if it does to show it off over on the YouTube channel and played it. And I was like, yep. Yep, still held up, still really enjoyed it. And I've played it now three, four, and five players, and I really enjoyed it at all three player counts. Uh, The cascading scoring mechanism in that game, I think, is unique. I don't know that there are other games that do that scoring mechanism like that. And it was really interesting to have one of the two co-designers in chat with us Mm. during the stream, and he actually talked about the impetus for the scoring mechanism and how everything came about and how the theme tie, which is the history of the city of Quebec to the game and the mechanisms in that game. And yeah, uh, really, really enjoyable experience last night. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was, uh, that was lovely. So before that, um, you and Jess were off at Grand Con. Yep. And uh, while you were away, the mice decided to play. So uh, Shrey invited uh, myself and Cindy, my wife, um, together with Greg, who you've seen from uh, people who watch the streams will have seen Greg and Shrey. And they've heard on the podcast a couple times yep. as well. And uh, we had a nice little game day. Uh, we kicked it off with Pipeline, which neither I or Cindy had played before, and Shrey had only played the once. Greg, of course was reviewing it here, so he's pretty familiar. He taught it. Um, and that was a really enjoyable game. Um, I uh, had watched the playthrough on the stream, um, and I was kind of not sure about it. Um, but playing it, I could definitely see me wanting to play that more. Um, it's one of those games where I'd say, if somebody in a game group said, I want to bin- really binge this game, I want to play it twice a week for the next month, um, I'd say, yeah, I'll go along with that. The only thing really stopping me, apart from the fact that I don't have the time to binge any game, is I've already got two games on my must-be-binged shelf. So uh, it's that's going to make it a bit tricky. But I would still do it for Pipeline. I thought it was a good game. And then uh, after a break for some Thai food, we uh, started up with uh, a game that's on one of those two games on my binge shelf, which is City of the Big Shoulders. Um, got in my fifth play of that um, and um, continuing to really enjoy it. Um, I'm, I was a little bit wary with this game about how powerful the American flyer company was as a starting company. Um, Greg picked it and he really did fly off to a flying start. Um, but, uh, again, I, and I got this time, I got a much better sense of getting the money in the companies and out of the companies again and manipulating things around. And I was actually able to squeak my first win. Congrats. Sitting the big shoulders, barely. Um, and uh, that, so that was, that was, again, a good game. And that's, that's definitely one I'd love to binge more often. I was also pleased that early, the previous day I'd managed to get in a two-player game of that with Cindy to get a feel for what it's like at two. Because I was a bit concerned. Um, it, 
stock holding and cross stock holding is an important part of this game. And how does that going to work with two players? And I'm not sure how the stock part of it works. I could quite easily see the stock part of it just not really being a factor in a two-player game. But there's enough interest in the running of companies part of the game um, that it's still an enjoyable game. It's not the same game, but then no game really is at two. Um, And I think it could still be a lot of fun at two-player. So we'll see how that goes. That's a heck of a day. You get Pipeline, City of the Big Shoulders, and a a Thai food meal. Um, That's fantastic day right there. Yep. Well that, done. That is nice. uh, really good. Yeah. What else? What else? Well, we go back to another stream and uh, Taj Mahal, which was a turn of the century Knizia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, that was, again, much like those games. I mean, it's it's uh, not too long a game, simple rules, interesting gameplay. Um, there is something... I mean, I do like games that are more thematic, um, particularly as games get heavier. Um, but, you know, something like Taj Mahal or Quebec... It's nice, easy. You can easily imagine someone coming, a couple coming over. Let's play a game. We'll teach you the rules. We'll play a game all in an evening and be done. And it's a fun experience. And that's what you can get with a really well done medium weight euro. And both of those are those. Agreed. And that was the second play of Taj Mahal because we played it before um, at the previous game day here, where we also played a couple of other games, um, one of which I have a slightly different opinion of, which was Fast Food Franchise. Yeah, neither one of us had played this before, but one of the guys, Dan, uh, had talked about it the week before, said, hey, have you ever played Fast Food Franchise? I was like, uh, no. And he was like, you need to play it. It's not the best game, but you need to play it. It's kind of a you know old school uh, not really a pillar type game, but a game in which, yeah, it, it, it's from the early nineties. In fact, I, it's from 1992, but he was like, yeah, you should definitely check this out. So he brought it and we were like, okay, let's give it a go. Yeah. He sold it as, you know, vastly superior to Monopoly, which um, is not the most, um, exciting way to sell a game. No, but he also said it was an early design by Tom Lehman, which was... Which then, oh, okay, so hold on. Yep, so we got it out, and we played it, and I think it was summed up as I was sitting next to Edward here, and we kind of looked at each other and said, we are not going to stream this. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I could believe it's superior to Monopoly. I'm not sure that it's materially superior to Monopoly. It's It's a roll and move, and... You're building up fast food franchises uh, in the center of the board. So whereas if you're picturing a regular Monopoly board to where in the middle there's really nothing going on, you have community chest and, and chance and all that, but there isn't anything actually being done in the middle of the board. Whereas in fast food franchise, you're actually starting fast food franchises and putting out uh franchises or and and they're going to score you just like how houses and and uh hotels would score you when other people land on them and you'll be able to expand your network of it uh, uh very in various cities around the around the board or around the country as it were and the premise of the game i thought was okay yeah not bad however you and i in a five-player game I don't know that you and I really played the game because if you, on your first turn, ideally you're going to land somewhere where you can start your own franchise. 
but nobody can open a second franchise until every player has opened their first franchise. It took me four or five turns before I rolled something that wasn't on somebody else's space to where I was actually able to open a franchise. And I'll be honest, I never had a chance in this game and nobody landed on my stuff. And 30 minutes in, I was literally out of the game. I went bankrupt and I went and watched TV, proverbial TV. And yeah, your, and, yours and, uh, wasn't much better. Yeah, a similar thing. I mean, if, if a bad set of die rolls early on really makes all the difference in this game. I mean, it, it's still in the end hugely driven by luck, um, and it wasn't wasn't to my taste. No, it really wasn't that terribly engaging. Now, again, it's a you know nearly thirty year old game, but then again, there are games older than this that I find much more compelling. So it's mm. not an age issue to the game. Just it really wasn't that good of a game. And looking on BGG, it's got a respectable rating of 6.4. You and I couldn't figure out why, though. I'll be honest. Obviously, huge respect for Tom Lehman. Yep. Not for this one, though. They, I, I, I appreciate making a better version of Monopoly, basically. But, yeah, no. I, I Yeah. Moving on. No. Yep. Yep, so uh, we had a bit of that, and I'm not going to go too further back, but I guess the la- next one I'll mention, the last one I'll mention for going back is Black Angel, um, which I didn't play on the stream, but we did play. Um, I played it at the game day, um, and I was really unsure about whether I liked it or not. It, it had a very mixed reaction, but it was a sense of, I need to play this again to have a feel whether I like it or not. So I... Uh, let Edward know, and he needed to, you and Jess needed to a, a practice game. So I, and the advantage of just being 10 minutes drive away is I could pop over for the evening and we could have a little game of it. Right. Um, and that gave a much better feel for the game. Um, I, uh, I can see it much more of its appeal um, from the second game. It's got a little bit of a dice, well, a good bit of a dice drafting from Twa. Um, a bit more difficult, though, to see how you build that up into turning it into victory points. And that, I think, is was the tricky thing. And I think several people found that it wasn't really – you had to play it a bit more to get a sense of what to do with it. While my experience with Twa was the first time I played it, I got the hang of it fairly quickly. Now, I know you're not a fan of Twa. I quite like Twa, although I never, I've never, only played it a couple of times. Black Angel felt like it was a bit more complicated, but not necessarily – had the payoff for that for me. But I I wouldn't mind trying it a little bit more if it wasn't that I have so many more of the games in the queue. Right. And for me, Black Angel, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it far more than I enjoyed Twa. Um, and I I don't know if it's the artwork that's so off-putting to me, but the 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 game itself just kind of Twa, I'm talking, mm-hmm. fell really flat for me. Black Angel has it almost feels kind of Lacerda-esque in that it's not complexity for complexity's sake, but it's a little bit more opaque on how to go about getting points Mm. in this game. And so it's a little bit harder to wrap your head around. And I wonder if the game does, it tries a little bit too hard to be too clever. And I think Black Angel is an enjoyable game. But I find myself with that as well as a number of other recent titles to where 
I enjoyed the game. I enjoyed the play. I would happily play it more if other people want to play it, but it's not a game that I'm clamoring to play myself after having played it three times now, uh, following the, uh, the lead up to the live stream and the live stream itself. Perfectly enjoyable. I really like dice drafting games and I actually like the, you know, we joked and called it fuchsia angel, uh, because of the pop of color, you know, that is a lot more vibrant of a space game than what the traditional black or blue, uh, colors. Um, yeah, I think, you know, tool did a great job with it, but ultimately I think the game is fine. I don't think it's anything that is super special or that's going to set it apart from being in that game on a pile of games. Yeah, and and to me, it has to do with this getting it factor. I mean, this has always been a factor in in the heavy cardboard weight um, fat category, and it it's kind of an odd thing when I first started listening to the show. Is well, why is this getting it factor in there? But it, it, over time, I've really appreciated it. I really like thinking about it that way. And with Black Angel, I feel this is a game you've got to invest two games to have really a, a fair sense of what the hell's going on. Because, And I think part of the complexity is that in most games, there's a fairly obvious path from what you do to scoring victory points. This is a game where you have, kind of have to construct that path. It's not obvious how you score victory points. You've got to play cards to set up your path to a victory points. Now, that's not necessarily always a negative thing about a game. I mean, Keyflower has that, for instance, where you, you have the tiles. But it's a bit more complicated, and as a result, you need that kind of two games to get it going. But once you get to that point of getting it in a game, then that raises the the the, the kind of the cost, the mental cost of saying, am I going to pull this thing off the shelf? If I'm going to pull a two, you know, you're going to have to play this twice, then it really better be a lot to get back from it. And for me, Black Angel did not have that payoff compared to Shoulders or Lisboa or other games I can think of that take two games to play. So um, that was, to me, the thing about Black Angel that set it down. And again, if I was asked to list, you know, what do I want to binge on, for Black Angel, I'd go, oh, I'm not sure. Well, you know, I've got Pipeline and Shoulders. Um, oh, yes, please, to binge on. So it's a tougher one. I think, yeah. And it's over to you, because I'm on my list now, so it's time for Edward's list. All right, so uh, Jess and I, well, okay, Jess has been playing me at Shobu. Um, I have had her on the ropes a number of times, and I've yet to win at Shobu, which is the little two-player abstract that has vaulted itself from never heard of it uh, earlier this year to one of my all-time favorite Thank you fillers now for a two player. It is a fantastic abstract that I'm terrible at and have never won. One day that'll happen, but still enjoying my plays of Shobu. Uh, also have played Yido Deluxe. We played that for the live stream as well as leading up to it. And I remember being thinking Yido was an enjoyable recipe fulfillment uh, kind of worker placement esque game. And that overstayed its welcome. I remember hmm. thinking, wow, 11 turns was way too many or 11 rounds was way too many. Well, with the deluxe edition, it shortens it to six rounds, but introduces specialists or workers that have special rule breakers associated with them. And it made it a lot more interesting, uh, but still, I'm not in love with the game, but I enjoyed the game. 
which mm. I would argue that the va- oh, vast majority of games fall into that to where, yeah, that was enjoyable, but it's not, oh, I, oh yes, type mm. game. So that's where Udo Deluxe fell for me as well. Another one that uh, falls in that same kind of window there is Rome City of Marble, uh, kind of an abstract to where you're laying rhombus shaped tiles and building up the city of Rome. Not a lot of games have rhombus shaped tiles, but that shape allows uh, some really unique construction for hexes in the center of these rhombuses or on the edges of the rhombus when they come together to where you can include three, four, five, or six in a hex to be able to create these buildings. So it was, we, we played it a number of times leading up to the live stream and including the live stream where the live stream played out completely different to where it can be a really nasty game, which Mm. that did end up being, but I don't think the game is necessarily intended to play that way. I think players get more benefit if they're more not necessarily cooperative, but they're not going out of their way to be mean to one another, to spite each other. So, but I like that the game gives you that freedom to play it in either direction if you wish. Enjoyed it, didn't love it. Right. And the last one that I wanted to talk about was Pax Emancipation. This is a Phil Eklund game through and through. I mean, it, it's a it's a PAX series game, so, you know, falls in, in the line of PAX Porfiriana, uh, PAX Premier, and PAX, uh, PAX Renaissance. But PAX Emancipation is... The game is set up to where the first part of the game is a cooperative game, sort of, mostly, I would say. I would say it's a 75% cooperative competitive game to where you have to everybody has their own goals their own personal goals that they have to meet collectively all three players have to meet those three goals to be able to then defeat or or uh, secure the emancipation of worldwide mm-hmm. slavery everybody's on the right side of history here they're all trying to get all the players are trying to uh, abolish slavery worldwide however if you fail in that, then you fail. Kind of like in Churchill, if you don't defeat both the both sides of the Axis power, the Germans and Japanese, you lose. Somebody might have lost less, technically, but you all lose. Well, in this, is the same thing. If you don't successfully all meet your goals, so even though you're trying to set yourself for the last, say, 20% of the game, which is, okay, now it's all about putting myself in the best position to score victory points, you also have to be able to make sure that you have to get to that point Hmm. or you're able to get to that point. So I might actually be doing something that helps you get to your victory condition or that you're getting into part two, if you will, of the game, your victory condition, but I'm going to try and do so in a way that also is advantageous for me so that I'm able to maximize and score victory points in that. It's fiddly as all get out. There are a ton of rules in this thing. Thematically, I think it's fascinating. The fact that here we are in 2019 and we have board games that focus on such a distasteful, yet important part of human history and can do so in a way that treats the subject respectfully in a sense that it doesn't make light of it and it doesn't 
sweep it under the rug like a lot of other games have have done this i mean that's the whole premise of this mm-hmm. game is the emancipation of slavery but man this game is hard like the understanding of the why and also getting the, this is one of those games where the rules overhead is extremely heavy to where it's all about your first few plays are going to be permissive in a sense that can I do this thing I'm trying to do? Are the situations set up to where I can even take this action and understanding that having the rules get out of the way takes a while on this one. So it's definitely a bit of a slog early on and I don't want to ruin how things turned out in the, uh, in the live stream. But the one thing I will say and we'll give away is this is one of the few games that I visibly was upset and frustrated in the middle of a game. I was really not enjoying part of the process because of the situation in which I found myself, which was having to forego anything that helped me for the greater good. Whereas everybody else was able to then leech off of that and put and get themselves points at my expense because I had to give up for the greater good that didn't feel real good. And I didn't enjoy that process necessarily, but big picture, I enjoyed the game. It is definitely a game that is going to require you to work at it. So kind of like what you were talking about with black angel requires a couple of plays in short succession. This is going to require two or three in short succession, Mm -hmm. but the investment on this game is going to be considerably higher than a black angel just because of just the size of the game even though it's in a small little box there is a really big game in that game or in that box did i love it no would i happily play it again i say happily in that yes i would enjoy tackling it again but i don't know that i ever felt fun or You know, it's not going to be a game that's going to bring a whole lot of laughs around the table, obviously, but I would like to get into it some more, but just be aware that the, the investment in time and effort to get the rules out of the way is no small feat with Pax Emancipation. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that would turn me off a game really, because I mean, in a way I'm, I've done it, right? I mean, those war games that we played Back in the seventies, I mean, the rule books in those things make you know, modern day games look. Like they're rule, minor. They're books, yeah. yes, exactly. legitimately, yeah. You know, with with you know, six rules, C paragraph six point two point four point one, um, for the exceptions. I mean, that kind of stuff was. But the trouble is, every time there was a phrase that I really came to me was something in the interview you did with Martin Wallace, where he said that. Every time you look in the, have to look in the rule book, it takes you out the game. And, and his aim was to try and minimize that. And I really resonated with that. I don't want to be digging around in the rule book figuring, am I allowed to do this? Am I, I mean, okay, your first game, you're going to get some things wrong. It's going to be a bit fiddly, but you really want to get past that point where the rules, okay, we know the rules now and we can play. And a game that's very fiddly in terms of rules, I kind of go, yeah, I did that in the 70s. I'm not sure I want to do that anymore. And yeah, this is definitely going to be one of those games where you have to know going in that it's going to require some of that. Um, And I played uh, when we streamed it, it was me, Jess and Russ. And we also had a professor of history 
from, I believe it's University of Maine, uh, Patrick with us. And he specialized in that aspect of history. So, wow, this is amazing. Mm. These guys have played the game a dozen times and we're still getting stuff wrong and we're still having to look things up. And so just understand that that's the type of game that this is going to be. But then again, if you're going to play the vast majority of a Phil, you know, the of Phil Eklund's games, you've got to know that this is what you're going to be into. And as long as you're good with that, then enjoy the game, right? Yeah. Enjoy that process. And lots of people are. I mean, there are plenty of people who enjoy working their way through a complicated set of rules and the like. And actually, I kind of want to watch the stream because I'm just fascinated to see what this history professor has to say and, and, and cat- catching a little bit of that part of it because, I mean, the period of history and that whole thing against them uh, where you're trying to fr- uh, get rid of slavery, that was a very fascinating historical event. Yeah, and it's not just in the U.S., it's worldwide. Mm. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think it I think we showed it off right even though we did struggle with some rules here or there which is inevitable no matter how many times you play a game still can happen so yeah so pax emancipation a game that i do want to play more but i'm not clamoring to play more how about you as far as acquisitions now you talked earlier to where you try and limit your acquisitions so yeah and and in fact becoming involved with this group has limited it even more because i get to play all these games so i don't really need to acquire much um but i mean early on in the streaming experience we played shoulders and i've really liked it just on those two games so i ended up buying it um, on the kickstarter so that's one acquisition that came a couple of weeks ago it finally showed up on my doorstep um i've already talked about that um the other acquisition that i would was a uh, well, I would say it's a deliberate ac- acquisition. I'll explain that in a moment. Um, was uh, something that happened as a result of HeavyCon. So at HeavyCon, we were kind of rolling around the tables, looking at the games, and really liked the look of this one that you were playing obsessively called pa- Pax Pamir. Um, and um, well, I went out with uh, Rand and Shrey, I think, and a bunch of people down to Night Shift Brewery to just get away from the games for a little bit. So we drove down to Night Shift, had a couple of beers, came back and thought, yeah, we've got time for one more game. And you were just packing up Pax Pamir. And we thought, oh, let's give it this a shot. And you wanted, you badly needed to eat because you hadn't eaten all day. So right. you weren't able to teach. And this is the second edition of Pax Premier. Yep. yep. Um, so we decided to do what I hate doing, which is to sit down and try and figure out the game through the rule book. Um, and my, my, my feeling at the end of this game where we'd realized that we got some rules really spectacularly wrong. But even so, I could say, this is good. But I'm not sure what Cindy's going to think about it. I mean, she played it happily tonight, but, I mean, it's got area control. It's got quite a lot of meanness. This is not Cindy's cup of tea. But then the following day, Cindy pops, decides she wants to sit and watch somebody else teach the game because she wanted to make sure she understood what was this thing we'd played the previous night. And there was only four people in the game. So she took the fifth seat and played it and won. And always good for uh, motivating people to enjoy games. Oh, yeah. And her reaction was, we have to tell everybody we know to buy this game because it's so good, Um, which was quite the reaction. 
And uh, so, yeah, I got I signed up on the like Kickstarter for it, got it, and we've played it a few times. And oh, yes, that is a really good game. Yeah, and it plays so differently. Uh, I didn't really talk much about Grand Con, but I ran a couple games of On Mars. I ran a game of 18 Lilliput uh, for folks that wanted to. Uh, they called them demos, but they were full games of them. However, there was only two games that we played for enjoyment just outside of that. Both of them happened to be PAX Premier Second Edition. Played it, uh, played one of them five player and played another three player. And you can make a case that maybe some folks are going to enjoy it more at various player counts than at other player counts, but I think it plays well at two, three, four, and five. Still haven't tackled solo yet, but I do plan on that. And it plays differently, but I enjoy it at all of those player counts. It is a it's a special kind of game. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I love the way there's just so many different ways to manipulate the game state. And even though, yes, it's, it's, there's an area control part to it, you, it, there's an indirectness. It's not like the usual throw stuff in a place. You've got to really maneuver things. And that means you're constantly trying to set up, oh, I can do this, 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 and this, and maneuver here. Um, and then the... The whole betrayal alliance mechanism allows some just interesting moves that you just not I've not come across anywhere else. And also the rules get out the way very quickly. Which I'm, is rare for a PAX game. Yeah, I've only the only time I played a PAX game before was PAX Renaissance. And that was an interesting experience because I'd watched a couple of streams that you did of it in Denver, and I thought, this game is right up my alley. Historical, it's got some interesting gameplay mechanics, some rich theme. Um, Greg had it up at um, the Beverly Games group, and we sat down for a game, and it was not fun. None of us enjoyed it, um, partly because we were constantly looking up the damn rules, um, and partly because it dragged, which might have been because it was a first game and we didn't really know what we were doing. And I got into a situation where there was literally nothing I could do. There was no card I could buy, no card I could run. I was just stuck for several turns. That's always fun. And that makes it horrible. And I was kind of thinking, I can imagine playing this again only with somebody who knows it really, really well. Um, I'd be inclined to give it a second chance. But you know, it was. Um, but Pax Pimi was nothing like that experience. It was much more a sense of, we made a complete hash of this game, but we can see how interesting it is and what you can do with it. And, you know, it, it's borne that out. I've played it maybe three or four times since, and it's definitely on my shelf of binging at the moment. <laughs> any, other, uh, any other acquisitions? Well, those are the only two games I have bought. And technically, of course, I bought Shoulders last year, so there's only one buy this year. However, I did go to HeavyCon, and Cindy went to HeavyCon. And so we got two people's worths of the giveaways at HeavyCon, which were pretty good this year. So a few came in there. Um, there was Warsaw City of Ruins, which we both got, got one each, and there was no way we could swap it with everybody because everybody bought a copy of, of Warsaw City of Ruins. Which was pretty amazing. Yeah, that yeah, was pretty cool. that was a nice gift. So I actually gifted mine to the castle in Beverly, um, the extra one, and I played it once so far, and I, it's looking like a really nice thinky filler. I, I, I'd like to stream that um, one lunchtime, one of the I, lunchtime things. Absolutely. I think once uh, once travel settles down for you, um, either before or after Essen, I think would yeah. be perfect to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it was nice, you know, nothing super dramatic, but interesting, and has a, a property that 
really occurred to me watching this, which is not something people think of in games. Because all the pieces in Warsaw City of Ruins are big, heavy cardboard chits, you can play this very comfortably outside and not be worried about the wind. The wind, the exactly. Away. Yep, yep. That um, is a good so it's point. a great little picnic table or on the beach kind of game. Eh, no longer that time of year, but you can see what I mean. So that was one of those I got from HeavyCon. I also got Rua, which uh, I've only played once, so I haven't really say much about it yet, um, because after Rua was played, Pax Premier arrived, so Rua kind of went onto the back seat for that. Um, I got Ulm, which is a game I've heard a lot of good things about, in similar ways to people say good things about Quebec. You know, it's an over uh, overlooked game that's got some interesting mechanics. It came out at Essen a couple of years ago, and I never got around to getting a copy to try it out. I watched Rado's playthrough, and it did look really interesting, but might be worth a stream for when we're going to do that. I haven't cracked the shrink on it yet, though, because... Uh, for, every, for every other reason that you've already said, yeah. And then the last acquisition is a really intriguing one for my collection, which is Wildcatters. So in my immediate reaction with Wildcatters is, well, this can't stay because it won't play too well. And my rule has always been, I've got to be able to play this with two because that way Cindy and I can play it together. We get familiar with the game. Um, and then when we play with other people, we're not sort of lost with it. Right. Um, but I've, you know, I've heard good things about it. I know it's one of your favorites and I watched the stream you did of it and I'm keeping it for some occasion because that is right up my alley. Yeah. I, I, the more I play Wildcatters, the more I've enjoyed it. And I think the second edition, which is the, the one that Capstone, uh, gave us copies of for, for HeavyCon, um, I think it only makes improvements on the first edition that it's only a move in the in the in a good direction across the board. I'm pretty smitten with that game. I do think it's best at four. Full full disclosure, I do think that is where it plays best. But uh, yeah, a really really good game. Yeah. So even though I've uh, had a very frugal year buying wise, uh, thanks to going to HeavyCon, it's been a more an unusually plentiful year acquisition wise. And uh, how about it, HCHQ, what's been in here? Nothing. Nothing since last episode, which isn't terribly rare this time of year, uh, just because with uh, SN, what, six, seven weeks away or so. So we're inside of two months either way. And so it's a matter of focusing on that's going to be, you know, 100 plus games that come into HCHQ that we're going to have to ship back home. Uh, There's not a lot, but... There are some things that are going to be coming here between now and Essen that I'm anticipating. So even though nothing's come yet, rolling into the anticipation, I'll go ahead and lead yeah. this one, which uh, Cooper Island from Andreas Odno, uh, that's going to be coming from Capstone Games, as well as Maracaibo from Alexander Fister. Those are going to be coming. I know Cooper Island's supposed to be here sometime next week. Uh, we're going to be streaming that before Essen, so I'm looking forward to that. Maracaibo is a little bit more suspect on whether or not we're going to get it ahead of time, because I know the production schedule and that's going to be real tight. Uh, what's your game? Recently reached out, and hey... I found out about 24 hours before the public did. <laughs> Finally, the Madeira Kickstarter is going to be starting on September 24th. And Veronica and everybody over there was like, hey, do you still want to do the uh, playthrough of the expansion? I was like, uh, yeah. Hello, of course. 
So they were like, oh, good. Glad to hear. We'll send you the expansion, which includes cards and a bunch of it's kind of a modular expansion. And I I want to say there are three parts of it, but I don't want to don't quote me on that. It's going to be modular but I don't know how many of them there's going to be. That said, when we stream it, it's going to be a part of the Kickstarter. So everyone will be able to actually see how that differentiates itself from the base game. I'm super stoked about it. I know you guys now know as much as I know about the expansion. I'm excited about it. I mean, it's the first golden elephant award winner and I I'm really excited to see what they, what they do with the expansion. I know one of them has cards, Hmm. which the original game didn't have cards. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I mean, I'm interested in that as well. I, I saw the stream of Madeira and I'd heard you talk about it so much, um, but I hadn't had the chance to play it. But the nice thing about going to HeavyCon is you can fix that. And I sat down with uh, Tony from Edinburgh and Sean Murphy, and we had a lovely free-player game on while Cindy, Cindy was doing, that's while Cindy was doing Pax Bermia. Um, we sat down with Madeira and uh, really enjoyed it. There's a lot of interest to that game. So I'm definitely uh, interested to try that out with the uh, with a stream that would be good it's a it's a game that's held up over the last you know six years or so now uh since it first came out and yeah i'm i'm excited to get it back to the table and see what the expansion brings another couple games between now and essen that i know are going to be coming to hchq or pax transhumanity which i'll be honest i was looking forward to pax emancipation although I had a feeling that it wasn't going to be my favorite of the PAX games, not about the theme, just about the the mechanisms and, and everything else. However, PAX Transhumanity is probably at the top of my list for games that I'm anticipating that I'm super, super excited about. And that should be here. I'm going to say sometime in the next four weeks, hopefully. So we're going to be uh, taking a look at that. And then the big one, High Frontier 4th Edition. However, the timing on that is going to be exquisitely tight, and I don't know if we're going to be able to do anything with it before Essen or right after the week following. So either way, I'm stoked for the new edition of High Frontier coming out, and I know everything about that game. It's going to have at the base, and then everything's going to be modular that that can be bolted on on top of it, so you can kind of customize how big of a high frontier game you want sign me up can't wait so that's kind of what's on my shopping list or if you will my anticipation list how about you well of course i've got a completely full um shelf of binging so i shouldn't really be looking up to getting any more games um but you know, the first thing to mention is actually not a new game because that's the age of steam kickstarter um, and because i consider steam and age of steam to be really the same game um, i just see that as a bunch of new maps and I'll be honest, I've never played Steam, so I can't correct you if that's way off base or if that's, I'm just going with it. I'm going to say, okay, yeah. I know that Age of Steam is more cutthroaty. I know, and I, I've heard it's tighter, but I don't know. I've never played Steam. Yeah, well, I've played both, and uh, I see the difference between Age of Steam and Steam as no greater than the difference between two maps in either of those systems. Okay. Um, so for me, the Age of Steam Kickstarter is I get a bunch of very nicely colored maps um, to add to my uh, map collection. And um, 
it, that's it. So it's not a new game. It's just an expansion, a few more maps. And Age of Steam maps don't count as new games, right? They, they don't. They're, uh, th- again, the way I justify whether or not it's a, take for instance, whether or not something is uh, eligible for the Golden Elephant Award, and that is, is it a standalone? So Age of Steam maps are not standalone. So ergo, it's not a new game. So it checks out. Yeah. Plus, the- they don't they don't take up much room. Right. And yeah, there's some bits with this Age of Steam, but you know, they're just spare bits, you know, because the ones with Steam aren't going to be as nice as the ones that will come with uh, with an ENO tool uh, color palette. Well, not not just that, but let's face it. There are some people that say that a lot of the VTOL slash big production from Eagle Griffin are overproduced. I think they're just gorgeous. I think mm. they're really well produced. So yep. I'm I'm really looking forward to that edition of it. And then the other two on the list are games that I could imagine buying someday, and because a friend is selling them off, I might as well get them from a friend and give them the money rather than Amazon. And that's um, both named after cities, London. Um, I We both played that. These are both games that Cindy and I have played. Cindy and I played London about a year ago with our friends um, Kate and David in England and quite enjoyed that. Uh, it was funny because um, the, they said, uh, whatever you do, keep an eye on poverty. You mustn't let poverty get out of control. So Cindy and I did not let our poverty get out of control, and our hosts did. <laughs> <laughs> do as I say, not as I do, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, and then the other one is Yokohama, which I'd played a couple of times and really wanted Cindy to try because she really likes Istanbul, which uses a similar work and movement uh, mechanic to it. And on a previous video over to Shrey's, after playing Pax Pamir, um, he had it on his shelf, so we pulled it off and gave it a try, and Cindy liked it. So, therefore, it passes the both me and Cindy like it test and have played it. So, that I think it's worth uh, push getting them, even though it may be a while before we uh, get around to playing them. Okay. All right. Good deal. As far as looking forward to playing, anything on your list, sir? Well, the top of my list is whatever's a contender for the Golden Elephant this year, because uh, you like like to ask your game your game group for their opinions, and if we're going to give our opinions, we need to play the games. So whatever's on that list is a top priority for me, which I guess means Crystal Palace, because I haven't played that one yet. It's definitely going to be in the running, right? I yep. mean, okay, so what are the obvious potential candidates right off the top of my head let's and i'm terrible at doing this off the top of my head so i probably shouldn't but i'm going to anyways in no particular order you have pipeline city of the big shoulders pax premier second edition uh potentially crystal palace uh potentially games like in 18 new england uh, some of the eight, new 18xx, which I haven't been able to uh, play yet, uh, as well as a host of other games that are coming out at Essen and probably one or two that I haven't even thought that we've played that are escaping my in- initial thought. Oh, the Phil Eklund games, for instance. Oh, yeah, like Pax Transhumanity, et cetera, et cetera. Or, yeah, so I think there's it's a good year. It's a good year to, uh, yeah, f- from a gaming standpoint, it's going to be harder for uh, choosing the Golden Elephant Award, but first world problems there, yeah. for sure. And, and of those, I've obviously City of the Big Shoulders and Pax Premier Second Edition I've played a few times, so I feel reasonably confident for at least yeah, that opinion. Pipeline I've now played once, so I'm, I'm at least that's one. I'd like to get another one in at some point, but I do want to try and get in some of the others. I don't know whether I'm going to be 
super interested in going for some of the more heavy rule games, just because I know that's not to my taste. But the point is, I don't have to try them all, right? I've just got to give an opinion. You have to. You're the one that has to try them all. There's that. And like I said, these are just the games that are off the top of my head. And it's, I mean, last year, I believe it was like a seven-person panel we had. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And there's also a reason why these don't get, the finalists don't get announced until April, because... Well, we have a lot of games still to get through, and this buys us time. Here we are in early, mid-September, already looking at what it is and trying to make sure that we have all our ducks in a row uh, to make sure that, you know, any any reasonable games that may make this list, we cover. So, yeah, good looking out on that. What else? Well, other than that, it's it's a lot of older games that I've not played that I'd like to try because I haven't had the chance to try. And, and I'm, I'm not going to give the whole list, but I'll just give a quick short list. I'd love to play Indonesia. Um, I, I've watched the stream. It's, again, it's that kind of – it's an economic game played on a map, um, lots of companies competing with each other. It, it's exactly the kind of thing that's, that's up my alley. Um, and one of our local members has a really nicely um, put together a map that he's got hold of and um, has invited me once and I couldn't make it, but hopefully we can get together. So it'll be fun. This whole list that I know you have here, I feel so bad that these games are on here and you're a part of this group and we haven't played them. So I, I feel terrible about well, that. That's can't be helped. I mean, we're, I mean, there's a lot of new games and we've played a lot of really good ones. Indonesia, Glory to Rome, I've never played. I've played Motanai, which is by the same designer, but that's as close as I've got to Glory to Rome. So I'd love to give that a try. Um, I would love to play some of the modern card-driven war games because my wargaming experience was all hex encounters in the seventies. Oh, that's true! Like old school stacks yeah. of chets oh, and a whole nine I've yards. I've got them. I mean, they're in my game collection, as it were—a whole bunch of Manila folders with the strategy and tactics games from the seventies. If you ever want to go really old school and see what it was like for us, I can get them out. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're talking like uh, Twilight Struggle yep. or any of those type yeah. games? Twilight okay. Struggle is, I guess, the big one because it's. It's got such a reputation, been high on the BGG list for so long, I really ought to try it. But frankly, I mean, things like um, the Watergate or um, 13 Days or something like that would also be, I just want to try them because I just never tried it. And uh, these are not games I'd expect to play with Cindy because I don't think she'd go for that kind of oh, thing. Oh, I don't know. I think she would. I think she would actually really enjoy, uh, like you you bring up 13 Days, Watergate, something like a uh, High Treason, The Trial mm. of Louis Real, because I think the theme on a lot of these, if you find a theme that yeah. appeals, I think that's enough to bring them in. And that would be actually interesting to try with Watergate, because Cindy, the, the, there was a really good podcast recently about the Watergate. Um, it's sort of like a five or six part podcast that went through the whole Watergate thing, and she loved listening to that. So that would probably be a nice hook to try the Watergate one out. Well, I should I should let you borrow that and you guys oh, yeah. bust that out. You so yeah, it. yeah, we should do that. And then the other on my list is I'd like to try another 18xx. I tried one at Heavycon, but unfortunately, it went. It was 1846. It went six hours. Um, my conclusion afterwards was I can understand how this can be a pleasant experience. 
Um, so I didn't give up on it, but it definitely struggled. I've since watched so the the the, um, the expert edition 1846 stream. Well, three that. experts and me. Yes, <laughs> I got it right, right. And that looked a lot more interesting. Um, and I think it's it's a case of there were newbies on the table and all the rest of it. I would definitely like to try more 18xx again. It's the kind of thing that's up my alley, so I ought to like it. I think 18 Chesapeake. Uh, everything I've heard about that game says that is a fantastic. Uh, intro uh, 18xx, but also like in 1846, will there's enough there to keep interest for an experienced 18xx gamer. Uh, so yeah, I definitely want to get a copy of that and and delve into that. So I think uh, that should be a priority. Plus, let's face it, streaming it would be great. Yeah, with, with, especially with some new players, because let's face it. Not everybody has hundreds of games under their belt uh, out there, and so they're going to be watching these streams to get a feel for it. So, yeah, I think getting a copy of 18 Chesapeake would be a great one and doing that uh, down the road. So good call on that. So what are you looking forward to? I'll be honest. BIOS Origins tomorrow on Sunday. Uh, we're breaking that out. I have some really eager folks to get into that. And even though it is arguably the game I'm most intimidated by to be able to teach on stream or just in general, I am jones in to play this because at its core it's a civ game and i love civilization games and that's what this is and i really want to get into that so i'm really really excited about it so looking forward to that and another one you mentioned martin wallace earlier and well he at least had some level of hand in tonight's review Steady and Emerald, first edition. It's been calling to me in the library for what feels like ever, but really strongly, I would say the last six weeks or so, I've really mm. been hankering to play this. I really want to get that to the table. And so I hope to be able to do that between now and Essen as well. So I would say those two are, are high on my list. Yeah, I wouldn't mind trying that at some point as well. All right. Now to take you to that wonderful canal side pub in Wolverhampton. Yes, let's uh, delve into Brass Birmingham. Published in 2018, designed by Gavin Brown, Matt Tolman, and Martin Wallace. Artwork by Lena Cassette, David Forrest, and Damian Mamolidi. Published by Roxley Games. Plays two to four players, it says, in about 60 to 120 minutes. As far as availability and cost, well, it's currently out of print or between printings, I think is a better way to put it. it. The reprint is supposed to be coming later this month, which is September 2019. So it should be available sooner rather than later. That said, currently out of print. Uh, plays and player counts that we've experienced. Well, I've played 12 plays at all player counts. All right. And I've played it about a half dozen times, give or take one or two at all player counts as well. You want to tell folks what's going on in Brass Birmingham? Yes, so Brass Birmingham, its setting is very important to this game. It is set during what I would argue is the most important event in human history. 
Um, so this is the Industrial Revolution. And why do I say it's the most important event in at least recorded human history? I like to think of it as the change it made to the way most people live. If you um, were to grab, go back to the Roman Empire, say, and grab some peasant and stick him in a time machine and take them forward to, say, about 1780, a distance of about 1,500 years, they wouldn't find the world has really changed that much. Most people were doing pretty much the same kind of thing as they did back in the Roman Empire. However, you take somebody from 1780 in Nottingham or Wolverhampton, and you transport them in a time machine a mere 100 years forward to 1880, the world has completely changed. The landscape is totally different. People are doing things that a lot of the jobs that were present 100 years ago have gone away. Completely new things have appeared. We've got steam trains. We've got telegraph services. We've got a completely different world. And that is the, the shock of the Industrial Revolution. I like to sum it up with one little statistical point. If you're a skilled um, worker in the Roman Empire, say something like a weaver, it would take you about three hours of work to earn enough money to buy a loaf of bread. If you're a skilled weaver in Nottingham in 1800, it would take you about two hours. In 1900, a skilled worker would take 15 minutes to earn enough to buy a loaf of bread. That's the degree of change that the Industrial Revolution wrought. And that's the setting for this game, this um, Industrial Revolution. Essentially, what we have is we have a map of the Midlands of uh, Britain, of England. Um, the map shows various towns um, that are from the Midlands. And each town has a bunch of slots in which you can place different industries, ironworks, cotton mills, things like that. The industries are either raw materials, which are the um, coal mines, ironworks, etc., or things or finished goods, which is the cotton goods, there's manufacturing goods, there's potteries. During the game, you will place um, industries on those slots according to the various rules that we're not going to go into because that's too much detail. And also, you'll place transportation links between these towns. The transportation links are necessary because you've got to get raw materials to the industries and you've got to get finished goods out to the market on the edge of the map. The industries that you place are in a progression of value. The lower level cotton mills are relatively weak compared to the higher level cotton mills that score you more victory points and income. But you've got to work up there. You've got to either build those industries or develop those industries to get them out there. The winner very simply, is the one with the most valuable industries and the most valuable communications links on that map. Now, a particular thing about the way this works, which is very interesting and very thematic, is the game is in two eras. In the first era, those communication links are canals, and you build up the towns and the canals, and you build a nice network of industries and canals, because canals were really important to the Industrial Revolution. Um, in the days before canals, it was really difficult to haul coal around because it's damn heavy and roads were pretty crummy, even though we had turnpike roads that were almost as good as Roman roads by the time um, of the beginning of this story. With a canal boat, you can put 10 times as much coal into a canal boat and have one horse tow that canal. And the impact was big. 
Um, the, when they built the first canal of this era, the Bridgewater Canal, that was to take coal from the Earl of Bridgewater's coal mines into Manchester. The price of coal in Manchester dropped by half. And that's the impact the canals had. And it was an enormous canal mania from about 1790 through 1810, similar to the internet bubble of things that we think of now or you know whatever bubbles we've seen. People were building canals left, right, and centre all over England. Then, 1830, um, the first um, full railway line was opened between Liverpool and Manchester. George Stevenson uh, was the designer behind the railway line. Um, it, we'd had railway lines before, and put engines to haul railways, although most of these railway lines would also be hauled as much by horse as they were by rail. The difference these steam trains made is hard for us to imagine now. I mean, essentially, whenever we travel anywhere um, in, um, in this time, it was at the walking pace. I mean, yeah, you can gallop a horse for short distances. You can get a really good sailboat with a wind behind you and travel a bit faster. But most of the time, you're walking. You're going that speed. In Roman days, you could do 40 miles a day. That would be kind of typical on Roman roads, which are really good roads. If you want to travel from Liverpool to Manchester, that's about 30 miles or so. It's going to take the fastest you could do it with a fast coach and horses is about three hours, and it's really uncomfortable. Imagine bouncing up and down in a non-suspension carriage for three hours. It was really ugly. Shifting the coal from Liverpool to Manchester takes you 12 hours with the horse along the canal, even with the highest tech technology, which is the canal. Uh, about a year after the uh, the Liverpool to Manchester Railway opened up, they ran the Planet locomotives on that route. It was one hour from Liverpool to Manchester. That's the difference. And that's a mere 30 miles an hour, which is not much by modern terms, but think of the difference that makes. Um, it completely alters how you think about time and space. And more importantly, it makes these canals completely obsolete, almost overnight. 12 hours or one hour to transport that coal which you're going to pick. So what we do in the game is we take this wonderful network of canals that we've got and we wipe them all out. And we start again with railways. And that's the second half of the game. And that's, to me, that is a, I mean, A, it's a kind of weird thing when you think about it in gaming terms. You build up this wonderful structure on your game and then you wipe it out halfway through. What kind of lunacy is that game-wise? But it's so thematic because exactly what happened. Suddenly the canals become worthless and the trains come in. And I love that, that thematic quality to it. And one other thing about this game that is, not really of interest to anybody else, but it's going to infuse everything I say. I grew up in the middle of this map, um, in the town of Walsall, um, on the Wolverhampton side of it, just, just where the crease is in the middle of that map. So this game has a very personal connection to me that it's clearly not going to have with everybody, but you're going to hear it from me. All right. So thank you for that. That's awesome. I, I, I'm sitting here just enjoying listening to this, guys. So, yeah, that, hopefully you guys enjoyed that as well. If you watched our uh, live stream of Brass Birmingham, um, Martin actually uh, uh, waxed eloquently about the history of this uh, during the teach as well. It was fascinating. It was awesome. So there you go. Before we dig into the actual review of the game, though, I do want to kind of or we are going to briefly talk about kind of what this review is. I want to stress this review 
is over Brass Birmingham. It is not going to be very much a comparison of Brass Birmingham to Brass Lancashire because every game should be treated and reviewed on its own merit, not in comparison to these other games, at least in my opinion. There will be some of that inevitably, but just like what we did with Gaia Project versus Terra Mystica and that and of its ilk, it's going to be reviewed on its own merit. Yeah, so we do, however, need to set a bit of context, I think, particularly for people who aren't very familiar with the background of it. Agreed. So Brass, and originally as just called Brass, was a game that appeared in 2008, designed by Martin Wallace, um, and it was set in Lancashire rather than in the Midlands, and, but it was very much a similar system. Um, to what we're seeing with Brass Birmingham. It's the original game, Brass. I remember when it came out, um, I was thinking, oh, this is a perfect game for me. It's economics, it's set in Britain, Industrial Revolution, which, as you can tell, is something I, I'm very interested in. And then I looked and it said, oh, minimum player count three. And I'm not interested in games I can't play with Cindy. So I let it go. I looked wistfully at it every so often on Board Game Geek. And so it was a while before I'd realized people had figured out how to play it with two. And that was probably about three years or more ago. I think I saw a Rado video and I thought, Rado playing brass, but it doesn't play with two. Oh, it does. Oh, great. I'll go for it. I've got to do this in Rado voice, right? With lots of enthusiasm. <laughs> but then there was a different problem. Martin Wallace had a falling out with a publisher or whatever. Um, we won't go into the details because we don't know the details, but basically it wasn't pretty. And that made me kind of less interested in getting it. And then Martin Wallace says he was going to do something with another publisher, and Roxley stepped up. Um, and apparently the story was um, that the Roxley folks were big fans of Brass. And, and they, they, they are, let me, if I may interrupt, Matt mm -hmm. Tolman, one of the designers, actually has the uh, a tattoo uh, of one of the industries on his forearm. So, yeah, big Big fan of the game. And so they, they said they really wanted to do it. They persuaded Martin Wallace to do it. And one of the things that Martin wanted to do with this was to also introduce a variant game, a different game, that would introduce some new elements that he'd thought about since he'd come up with the original Brass. So the way, I mean, that kind of, uh, there was various discussions, I guess, about how to do it. And they tried things and play tested and stuff. And what they came with with the Kickstarter about, two years ago now, was two games. The original Brass, completely redone in terms of artwork, and given the name Brass Lancashire, because it's set in Lancashire, and the new game, Brass Birmingham. And that's really the combination. Uh, to, we're going to focus on the Birmingham game, which is a new game, but with a very similar system. So with that said, let's delve into the five factors that we think give the game or contribute to a game's weight, starting off with the complexity or the rules overhead of the game. So I would say with this, this is a definitely on, on the, the heavier end. I mean, I'm always a little bit wary about heavy because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an old war gamer. So, you know, all of these games seem pitifully light in comparison to some of those old war games. And, and um, to be honest with you, also compared to something like what I had talked about earlier with Pax hmm. Emancipation, this is not that. This is rules light compared to that. But we're talking for your standard Euro definitely on the heavier end of things. Yeah, I would, I mean, I compare it perhaps to the Lucerda games I've got, Gallerist and Lisboa. I would say it's a bit lighter than that, but not much. Um, but it's definitely in that kind of territory. And the fact that 
each of the various industries and the materials in this have their own rules, you know, whether it's beer or, you know, as far as there's little exceptions that abound in this game, which adds to what if you're, you know, a war gamer, 18 XX or Chrome basically, or, you know, the things, the fiddly aspects of the game, but that also give the game its character. There are a number of those in this game. So there is, it's definitely on the higher side of rules complexity for a Euro. Yeah. um, But one thing that isn't true, of course, of most Euros, uh, at least traditional Euros, is you've got a very strong theme that makes it easier to understand the rules. So when you say to yourself, um, and it's important to use the, the theme like this, coal needs to be transported across rail or canal links because it's heavy. However, the output of ironworks, which is iron machinery, not raw um, iron, but then the machines that are made of it, that was sufficiently valuable that it would actually be um, reasonable to transport it over the road network. So as a result, you don't have to worry about uh, rail or canal links to transport iron, while you do have to worry about that to transport coal. So the theme ties into the mechanics, and I think that makes it easier to get hold of. And everybody jokes that iron teleports. It doesn't require infrastructure being built by the players in the form of be it canal or railroad because it's abstracted out because it travels via road, as you just said. So that makes sense to me. So the theme fits and it helps explain the rules of the game, which lowers that that rules complexity a little bit, but it's still there. Yeah, and it, and and I think it is important when you're learning the game is to to pay attention to the theme, and when you're teaching the game, I, I certainly when I teach, I go heavy on the on the theme because um, that excites me, but also I think it does help sp- uh, get the rules in. So moving on to the planning aspect or the the decision matrix is what I say. The depth of the decision tree in, in this game. Where do you think uh, some ideas on that? Well, again, this this definitely on the heavier side. And I would say this is where it, it compares with, I think, any game that I've played um, in terms of that kind of uh, that heaviness. Um, what is particularly interesting about this is you've got a really – interesting blend of 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 what in board game terms we talk about as strategy and tactics long plan planning and short term planning you have to do long term planning to say oh i want to do well with cotton so i've got to think about developing early on to get to the high value cotton so that i can get that cotton out and i can get it out early so it can score well and then at the same time, you've got tactical things. Oh, I want to develop the cotton out, but iron's really expensive at the moment, so maybe I want to get an ironworks going and get the iron out. And so as a result, you can't really know what you're going to do in the next term because you've got to react. You've got to react to the game state. But on the other hand, if you lose track of those strategic points, you're going to flap around and, and not do too well either. As we say, stay on target in this game, but at the same time, stay on target big picture wise, but you also are going to have to take advantage of uh, be be opportunistic uh, in a tactical way to maximize what the game state provides to you while also trying to stay on that direction and talking about developing. You have to decide, is it worth it for you to spend these early actions to develop through certain uh, technologies to get rid of them, so to speak, as opposed to actually building them, just basically discarding them out of the game? That way you can get to the, the, the more valuable ones quicker, but at the cost of an action, 
And ultimately, you want to be as efficient as possible. So you have to decide whether or not that development cost, meaning the action cost, is worth the lack of income that these things are going to provide you. So it's a there's a constant kind of seesaw or push and pull here as to maximizing efficiency while also trying to benefit yourself long term as well as being opportunistic when that's available. Another aspect is there's a hand management element to this. So one of the things I didn't mention in the overview, but you start the game given a hand, a hand of cards and you will play through those cards. Each card, uh, whenever you take an action, you have to discard a card. And when I first, when even when I saw the playthroughs, I thought, well, actually, that's going to be fairly straightforward because only one of the actions, does it matter which card you discard? Um, all the other actions, you can discard any card. Oh, hand management is a nightmare in this game. You are constantly looking at the hand going, I really want to be able to develop a, a, to build another ironworks at some point. I could do it with a Dudley card, but maybe somebody else will get to Dudley. So maybe I should keep the ironworks card, but then am I going to have an ironworks available within my network to build it on? And you're constantly, these decisions are coming and hitting you. And hand management actually is quite an important part of this game. And also... Going back to kind of the strategic aspect of this, preparing yourself even early game to set yourself up for the rail phase of things, making sure that you have beer available to be able to make use of double rail builds and making sure that you have the infrastructure available so that you are able to build when and where you want going into that second phase. It's inevitable that there are going to be some comparisons made as we go through the review, but while it's not as important in Brass Lancashire to make sure that you're set up for double rail builds, that's also something that you need to anticipate and to be able to plan for for the later half of the game, which you want to be doing early on, and that also ties in with the hand management. What cards can I go ahead and hold on to for that later game? Or can I go ahead and burn these cards now? Because, no, I don't think I'm going to be using too much up in that part of the board, wherever that part of the board being. Mm. Yeah, and that, uh, actually, uh, when we say that uh, comparison now, I should point out, I never played Lancashire before I played Birmingham. So I'm looking at this purely from Birmingham. I've only played Lancashire four times and only two player. So I've got way more knowledge of Birmingham. So it's... And then to me, certainly this setup element is really interesting because although you wipe out so much of the network you've built up, there is a little bit left. And that little bit can be very important in terms of transporting you, both in terms of what you've got on the board and also another bit that's coming in, which is money. And not only that, but not all of the connections in this game have both canal and railroad networks to where some are only early game connections like between I'm going to butcher this. I apologize, but Walsall and Burton on Trent, that connection there is only via canal. Whereas Walsall to, to Tamsworth is only rail. So being able to be aware of these things and set yourself up to maximize these opportunities when they arrive is also something that you absolutely should be planning for, or at least if not planning for, be ha be cognizant of so that you don't trap yourself because, oh no, I was, oh, that's only a canal and not a canal and rail. That doesn't feel good. 
But talking about money in this yep. game. So, although I uh, will diverge slightly to say, don't worry about the fact that you're struggling to pronounce Walsall, um, because even most British people struggle to pronounce Walsall. They keep going Warsaw because that's the more, it's similar and it's the big city in Poland. And may, way, way, way more people have heard about that than Walsall. It's a very small town with not a, a decent, does not have a decent football club. So I hear you saying Walsall. I feel like I'm saying Walsall, <laughs> but apparently it's not the same. So I'm trying, but I digress. Yep. Well, it's, as I said, it's a, it's a common uh, issue in, even in England. Anyway, money management. Yes, yeah, so another aspect of this game is you've got to handle money. Surprise, surprise. It's a Martin Wallace game. Money is important. And what's important to help keep things going? Loans. Um, it's, it's another factor. You've got to say to yourself, how much money do I need? How much do I need it now? Um, do I want to bring in loans? The, you have to use loans, but the degree to which you use loans is interesting. You can go more for income and go less for loans, or you can ignore your income and go more heavy on loans. And then not just have you got to manage money in the traditional, have I got enough money for what to do? Money affects turn order. It does. And the amount of money that you spend in a given turn is going to dictate where you are in turn order in the following turn. So sometimes you want to spend a lot. Sometimes you don't want to spend a lot. And loans are an integral part of this being able to spend a lot aspect of the game. Yeah. And the turn order manipulation is is really quite interesting. I, I know Greg suddenly eyes light up when he can manipulate turn order. And you get plenty of that because it how much the when you decide turn order, the person who spent the least goes first. And so you can do some quite interesting things using that information, particularly if you're towards the end of a turn order because you had a heavy spend. You can say to yourself, well, I'll do a couple of cheap actions, jump myself to the front of the queue, and I can get four actions in a row, which is really nice. Which, and this is something we'll delve into more later, but this is where it can be a bit parasitic or you can leech off of other players' infrastructure, taking resources that they were planning on using to be able to maximize for yourself. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself with this, but as you can see, the depth of the planning on this absolutely is going to be where the meat of this game is and the majority of the weight, even though there's a fair bit of weight in the rules complexity as well. So moving on to the luck or the random factors in the game. Well, there's two areas of randomness. Um, the first is setup randomness. You've got some setup of the external markets and what goods the markets are going to purchase. Um, you place them randomly on the edges of the map, and that's different each time. But that's purely setup. It, it is, but it makes a huge impact on mm. the actual game-to-game -game play differences to where one industry is going to be maybe way more important up north, whereas the next game it's going to be out in the southwest corner or somewhere around. And where those are makes a huge difference in the gameplay for the simple fact that the actual industries of the different cities do not change. So where they export to, to the off-board or, you know, going out uh, to the ports, or there aren't ports in this game, but you get the idea, the perceived shipping them out of the area, where those are can have a drastic impact on how the, a single game of this shapes up. So knowing where that is at the beginning of the game is a super important thing, but like you said, it's something that 
impacts the game, but it's set in stone at the beginning of the game or before the game actually starts. So I don't tend to think of that as a random factor in a game because it's a setup um, variation. Um, um, what is a random factor in this game is, as I've mentioned earlier, you've got cards. So you've got a deck of cards that combines both locations, matching the towns, and also the industries. And as I said, you have to discard a card for every action that you do. Um, if you discard a card with a particular location, you can fill any of the slots in that location with whatever industry is there. If you discard an industry card, you can only build that industry, but you can build it anywhere that you are already connected to on the map. Um, and obviously, what cards you get is going to have an influence about your strategy and certainly your, your tactical play to play. During the course of each era, you will play the cards in your hand. You'll refresh those with, an, with, over time, an equal amount of those cards and then play all of those cards out to finish. So that randomness is definitely going to affect things. You can definitely be caught in a situation where you, I really want to build an ironworks, but I haven't got any of the cards. And from there, there are a couple of ways to mitigate it with the wild cards that are in this game. However, exchanging cards in your hand for those wild cards is an action. And going back to what I had said earlier, efficiency of actions, quote unquote, wasting actions to get wild cards can have a negative impact on your actions versus another player's based strictly on something that was out of your control, which is the card draw. Yeah. Well, so, still, right? yeah, it is, but it's something to be mm. aware of. And so I think the, level of randomness of the card draw does lower the weight a little bit as far as you're having to make lemonade out of lemons understood mm. so there's that side of it but there's also that mitigatable amount of randomness at but it does come with it with a cost which is a cost of actions so it's something to at least be aware of as far as the game length that's six i've never seen a game approach 60 minutes of this in my life have you no not yet i mean maybe if i learned to play really fast i could but with two players with just me and cindy um it's usually about a couple of hours and it can stretch to three with more a first game obviously much longer but i would say two to three hours is i think so so I, I i i feel like the the time offered the 60 to 120 i'm not gonna say it's a lie i'm just gonna say that's really ambitious and I've yet to see it, so it's a lie. Uh, two to three hours feels like the right amount of time. Maybe you can get that down to 90 minutes realistically. And I'm sure there are experts out there that are like, no, no, we totally, yeah, I get that. But the majority of us aren't going to be those experts. So that said, even though it does play longer than the time that it says, I don't ever find myself feeling like the game is just slogging along or that I'm watching my you know, watching the clock or looking at my phone. What time is it? How long have we been here? So I still feel like it plays in the right amount of time for what it offers. Yeah, I, and I'm with you on that. I, I, I've always felt fully engaged in the game and, and quite happy with it. Um, I don't tend to like games that go beyond the three or four hour mark because you can't get them in in an evening. And I like therefore I tend to have a mental cutoff. I'm I am not playing diplomacy again that takes um, you know ten hours to play or whatever. Um, and this I think to mine really nicely fits that, and we can happily play it as an, in an evening. 
As far as the getting it now, and this was interesting to hear uh, that early on you were like, yeah, I don't understand why. But now you now you get it, <laughs> if you will, as to why we included this originally with the uh, contributing to the weight factor. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was, it was always thought it was an odd part of the, the structure, but now I really appreciate it. And actually playing this really brought it home to me. Um, I got this game on Kickstarter. It's no particular surprise that some of my friends from where I grew up also got it on Kickstarter. So Richard, the guy I mentioned earlier on, who I uh, who introduced me to diplomacy, um, he got the game as a Kickstarter. And he and his wife tried it, and I struggled a little bit with it. And Cindy and I went over and visited them not long afterwards. And um, they said, well, we'd like to crack this out. Um, and Cindy hadn't really played it before. And I said, well, let's give it a shot. And we had a game, and it was a rough game. Um, and we struggled a bit, and it took a bit longer than ours. And I, and I made the point, we need to play this again tomorrow morning, right away. Um, and, yep, we think it's worth it. That second game made all the difference. Um, and I ended up visiting them about a couple of months later, and um, suffice to say, the cards were seriously worn that played the game so much. Um, you do need, and I think this is true of many heavier games, you need to play two games in rapid succession. Maybe not next one day and the next, but certainly within a week or two to cement the rules. And this game definitely needs that two-game effect. I, I agree. Now, yes, you can understand the mechanisms and the how to do things during the course of that first game, seeing the transition from the rail uh, from the canal phase to the rail phase, I feel like is a very important thing. Oh, as well as the scoring that you're going to see in the midway point as well. So I feel like you're going to understand it during that first play. However, being able to play it that second time is going to cement a lot of these. Okay, wait. Coal needs transportation, whereas iron doesn't, right? Okay. To where basically saying that the rules, getting the rules overhead out of the way to where now you're just focused on gameplay, probably a couple of games. I would agree with that. Yeah. So overall, where do you think this game uh, falls weight-wise? Um, I'm always a little bit where, uh, unsure of how we classify the uh, relative weights here because I need examples to work off. So I would class it as a heavy euro, similar to Lisboa and the Gallerist. Okay. And, I mean, we joke, but, you know, one Rococo. We, we use Rococo being the, the quintessential midweight euro. Uh, but this is definitely a step up from that, if not a couple of steps up. But at the same time, a heavy euro... I would agree. I would put this on par with something like a Madeira or something along those lines. Whereas some of the oddball games that are a little bit harder to classify games in the PAX series, with the exception of PAX Premier Second Edition, which I feel like streamlines it completely out. Going back to something like a PAX Emancipation, where I feel like that game is considerably heavier than this. But that's due to more the rules overhead than the actual gameplay, whereas I think the gameplay here is a little bit heavier than the rules overhead uh, aspect of PAX Emancipation, something along the lines of that. So, yeah, I would agree that this is a heavy euro. Yeah, it's kind of medium heavy on the rules, but definitely heavy on the, the decision matrix. So moving on into reviewing the components of the game. Uh, Roxley, I feel like did a really, 
really good job with this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I had high hopes. Um, I like nicely produced games. It definitely helps. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is definitely up there with Eagle Griffin or Stonemaier. Um You've got really nice, all the chits, the nice thick cardboard, the cards handle really beautifully, although I did sleeve mine, which I don't usually do. Linen finish on those, which I'm a big fan of. Yep, that's really nice. Um, Some people found the resource cubes to be a bit boring because they are just plain cubes. Um, They want little chests or some clumps of coal or something. Um, I don't find that i found that the the cubes actually work very well because you have to stack them on the um on there the barrels some people like to stain the barrels because they're very kind of plain and light but they they're just nice i i find they all work really well they they could have just been cubes and work perfectly fine but the fact that they are barrels always nice and i i agree with you as far as component quality the chits it punches super easily which when when chits or or the punch boards just fall out kind of by themselves. Always a nice sign. Super thick, really, really nice quality. Good artwork on them, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, basically, I'm just echoing everything you said. I am really happy with the component quality across the board with what they did. So one element of the components that uh, I'm not almost unsure whether to mention it or not is an important part of the deluxe version of the game that isn't present on the non-deluxe version of the game, and that's the the money. The iron clays, the yeah. chips, poker chips. And I think it's worth talking about them because um, they are they did very much come with a game. Um, when they did the Kickstarter, um, they were the kind of the surprise reveal. No, we're not going to give you metal coins, which is what everybody was expecting. We're going to go poker chips, which to me was wonderful news because I'd been watching Heavy Cardboard and I'd learned that poker chips were the only way to play an economic game. Um, to the point that I now annoy Edward whenever he pulls out any cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not using poker chip. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that said, they're really nice, uh, but they're they're not necessary. Uh, the in-game money is per- perfectly fine in the retail edition. The poker chips are nice. There is a huge rabbit hole that you can go down discussing the poker chips. There are going to be poker chip snobs out there that know they're too slick, uh, but, you know, sand them up a little bit and they get a little bit more rough. I'll be honest, they're not wrong. As somebody who frequents casinos and is very familiar with composite and clay chips in the whole nine yards, they're not as nice as those, and the weight isn't exactly where I would want it but we're really nitpicking here. Mm. That said, they're gorgeous and they fit in very, very well, both in the spaces on the board that the, the board is actually designed to hold the poker chips on it for whenever you pay in a given action. But also they're just, they're poker chips. They're nice. They, they're just a nice accent to the game. And I think even a little more than that, one of the things I like about them is that they just don't look like poker chips. You know, they have no casino kind of look to them. The, the edge spots and all that are not yeah. there right. Yes. And also the design is really nice. It's a lovely, intricate design. This is this... Um, 
kind of looks like wrought iron. Um, they were designed by a guy called Chad Michaels, who apparently is a big deal um, for some of his design work. And apparently it was a right pain in the neck to sort out the manufacturing of them because um, this is a story, I think it came out in the interview you did with uh, with the folks, if I remember. But uh, he, of course, wants this very intricate design of and they're saying, how the hell are we going to manufacture this? And there was a lot of bouncing back and forth as they tried to coordinate um, that. But I think the result is something that looks really nice. And I mean, yes, there's a poker chip people say, oh, it doesn't handle as well as all the rest of it. But to be honest, for me, I really do like those looks. Oh, I think it's beautiful. It's just a matter of the colors are different than what you would anticipate. And they're a little bit slicker than what I would like. And the weight isn't exactly. But again, we're nitpicking. And if you're not experienced with poker chips, they're perfect, right? So you don't know any of those things. They're they're not unfam or they're not they don't feel different because you're not familiar with that. So again, you're 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 arguing something that a very small minority of the people that are going to play this are going to worry about. And again, you don't need the poker chips, but they're nice to have. Uh, on the flip side, negative wise, on the cards, uh, because some of the cards have darker borders around them uh anybody that is familiar with magic the gathering or any kind of card game that has dark borders around the edge of the cards they can show wear easier than a white bordered card can so that's something to be aware of that these are not some sort of special card that are not uh that that are that are protected from that so if that does matter to you you can always sleeve the card so something to be aware of Moving on to the box size, it's square 11.8 by 11.8 inches by 2 inches or 30 by 30 by 5 centimeters. So nice even numbers on that there. As far as the graphic design, thoughts on it? Well, I, I find that the map is nice and clear. Um, I can read it pretty well. There's a bunch of um, examples on there, um, little reminders for things like the rail costs and canal costs and the fact that you coal needs the railways and iron doesn't, things like that. Um, so I find that easy enough to, to see around. The fact that the board is double-sided, I think, is important because there is the dark or the black country side of the board, which, let's face it, is dark. It is intentionally dark to where I would argue that this was a form over function. Whereas on the other side of the board, it's the daylight side of the board, if you will, which makes it a lot easier to see. But even so, it's still got a darker aesthetic to it that probably then a lot of us are going to be familiar with or used to. That said, the iconography is consistent throughout the game, which I find important. Those little reminders that are in the bottom right-hand corner of the board, I feel do a good job of it. And overall, I think it's a really good job of graphic design. But I do read that a lot of people say it's just way too dark. Now, we have the advantage of playing in the studio with, you know, enough light to where the sun comes in and says, yo, you got a lot of light in here. I get that. But even so, if you play in the lights, I just, I'm not saying these people are wrong. I just don't have a problem with it. 
Yeah, I've not had a problem, and I like to play on the dark side because, as I say, that should be still the day side because this was the black country. Um, there's a lovely quote from Dickens in old Curio- in his novel The Old Curiosity Shop where he talked about how the factories here poured out their plague of smoke, obscured the light, and made foul the melancholy air. So, you know, you want that feel in this game. You do, but at the same time, you need to make sure that it's playable. So I get that. I hear you. Now... One other nice thing about the game for those of us that aren't from the UK here or, or or from the black country, I don't know most of these towns. I'll be honest. Like I know where Birmingham is because I've been there, but outside of that, I wouldn't know where, I don't know, Stafford is or where Coventry is. Otherwise, they are color coded into different regions of the board. So the different kind of sections of the board are color coded to match the cards as well, which will help at least put you your eyes in the general location of where that town or city is going to be, which is going to be helpful. At least I find it helpful. Yeah, I, I can't speak to that because I know where all these places are. <laughs> so it's a lot easier for me. However, I do have a, a nit of annoyance um, about uh, on the map. It says at the top of the map, black country. Um, but unfortunately, where it says black country isn't actually the black country because this map is much bigger than just the black country. Um, for those of you at home who want to check it up, um, the black country is roughly the area between the three towns of Wolverhampton, Dudley and Walsall. Um, that's the black country. And the bit where it's labelled the black country, I would call the potteries because that's where a lot of ceramics were made. Um, so that's a little nit that would irritate someone like me who actually comes from there. The one other graphic design, it's not really an issue once you get used to the game, but until you do, and I don't know that there was a better way to do this. Maybe I'm not sure, but income versus victory points. It uses the same track, but different outer track, inner track of numbers. You want to you want to unpack that a little for folks? Yeah, it's um yeah, the inner outer track is a little bit more complicated because it's the way the which the income operates. So if if you go up 2 points on the income track, you don't necessarily increase your income by 2 um because the income isn't linear with the uh, with the points. But the same track is used as a victory point track and you use different shape markers. Um you use a hexagon um, shape for the victory points and circular shape for the income, which is consistent across the iconography across the whole game. I have never actually had a problem with confusing the two so far. Other people have certainly concerned themselves that there'd be a problem, um, but it's not one that I've had yet. So again, not a major thing, but something to point out. And uh, one last thing I will say about the graphic design, uh, going back to the Iron Clays, um, is that they don't follow what I would say accepted colors. Yeah, traditional colors being ones are whites, reds are fives, 20s usually, or 25s are usually greens or whatever, and blues can be tens. Um, that's kind of the big picture. Sure, there are people in California that are saying, no, I get that. But mostly, and some people are going to take umbrage with that. But the fact is, just... The numbers are written on the on the iron clays. You get used to it. It's not that hard. Even as somebody who is used to those traditional colors, I have no problem with it. So again, it's a it's a knit to pick, but it's something to be aware of, right? Yeah. 
and for me, I'm not familiar with poker chip colors, so I just appreciate the nice aesthetics. Moving on to the artwork. So the artwork. Um, I love it. I think it's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Um, the box cover is just beautiful. I, mean, I, I, I would argue this is the best box cover in board games. I'm thinking when we get our new room where we'll have our board games placed, that box is going to go front on instead of side on because I just want people to admire that box cover. I mean, you look at look on the map. I mean, you've got the map is super detailed. Um, every there's no standard. Oh, just have a kind of green swirly shape for something on this. Every you've got every part of the map is custom done. Um, and a particularly important point is the buildings on the map and in the cards. They're real buildings. I look in here at Walsall. I'm pointing to a, the church there. That's St. Matthew's Church. I went there once a year for our school Founders Day services. I mean, these are familiar buildings. Um, and I love the fact that they went to the effort. Because, I mean, they come from Canada. What do they know about, about uh, the Midlands? But they took the effort to find pictures of buildings of that time and put them on the map. I do all that yeah the artwork on the cards is beautiful just again artwork is very subjective so i understand that i think it's beautiful i i have nothing negative really to say on the artwork it's yeah i i think it does a really really good job one of the one of if not the prettiest games out there artwork wise and also um one of the components that they have is a component for, for you to put your money on to indicate your player stack and these are illustrated with pictures of people from that time um and i mean that's a nice touch you've got arkwright you've got um stevenson um various figures of that of that point one of the things i actually want to call them out for is they went through the effort of doing something very difficult was to actually find some women to put on these pictures. I mean, in these in those days, women could not own property. So being able to be an industrial figure at that time was pretty much impossible if you happened to be born, born with the wrong set of genes for playing this game. Um, and they found to, to do it. And that, I think, the effort that they went through to do that and put those on the charts, they really deserve kudos for that. Yep. And the two women, and I apologize if I don't pronounce these correct, but it's Eliza Tinsley and Eleanor Code. Yeah, that sounds all right. All right. So, yeah, I think that's pretty amazing because, like you said, back then. The- yeah. So, you know, kudos to them to going through the extra effort to do these kinds of things and, and really does. I mean, yeah, gameplay matters way more. I'm happy to play uh, on an 18xx board that looked like it was knocked up in somebody's garage with a dot matrix printer. Yeah, I get that. But when you play a game and it has this level of artwork and component quality, it has to enhance the experience. It does enhance the experience for me. Agreed. I, I want to get this game. I want to show people this board, even if I'm not going to play the game with them. I just want to say, look how beautiful this is. And this this is kind of a showpiece game that shows where the joining of form and function can meld uh, outside of, and this is no secret that I'm a huge fan of Eno tools artwork outside of his artwork. This is probably my favorite artwork in the board gaming world. So yeah, I, I think this is only going to help bring people into the hobby when you, sh- when they see what board games can look like. Mm. As far as the rule book, clarity and quality, 
I'll be honest, it's been a while since I've gone through the rule book on Brass Birmingham. However, the layout, I think, is done very well. However, it's, well, there's 177 rules questions on BGG, and the game hasn't been out that long. So there's that. I don't feel like it is the most thorough as it could be. There there are definitely some issues I take with the rule book. Uh, I think the setup is done really well. I, I feel like they may have gone a little bit too far to try and integrate the artwork aesthetic into the rule book as they went past usability. They went form over function a little bit here. And I know that there is at least one big rule that was omitted in the rule book. Yeah, one rule to watch if you're playing this is it doesn't actually say in the rule book that in the beginning of the rail era you get a hand of cards each, um, which is kind of important. Um, I can see how that kind of thing slips. For me... It's weird. I mean, I had no. I found the rule book was perfectly fine, but of course, I'd watched the heavy cardboard playthroughs, and I'd had Edward teach me the game. So, I mean, that kind of ruins it for all reviewers you're going to review with, because pretty much all of them will have watched you teach the game first. Oh, stop, stop! That said, the layout isn't my favorite. It's uh, it's not the way I want to teach the game. Which the way I want to teach the game is set up differently. So therefore, it makes this not how I want the rule book laid out. And like I said, there there are holes within the rule book, so I, I don't want to begrudge it. The one thing that I will take serious issue with, though, is the uh, the player aid, or I guess you could call it a player aid that came with the game. It's on a card. It's written way too small, and it's, I would argue, unusable. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i old. I need reading glasses. I have reading glasses. I use reading glasses. I have trouble reading that player aid um, in the evening because my eyes are just too tired. Actually, on one side, it does have the card distributions, which is pretty useful. Um, but on the whole, it's just annoyingly doesn't say enough. Um, and it, when it's a situation where people are saying, oh, do, what do I, I want to develop? Do, what do I have to give up for developing? And it's not there on the player aid in front of you. That's bad. That, that doesn't, it's not usable. No. Don't do that. Make it, I realize that they tried to keep it consistent with the cards and everything, but no, that's not okay. And it should not fall on users of BGG or us out here in general to make our own player aid. I shouldn't need to do that. In a game like this, I'm not going to say is unplayable without a player aid, but my Lord, does it make it a whole lot easier. So there are player aids that people have made. And in fact, there is one really beautiful one that matches the theme and everything else about the aesthetic of this game that's on BGG. And we'll link that to or for you in the show notes down below. That said, it does a wonderful job. So taking that develop action as an example, step one, discard any card. Step two, remove one or two player mat tiles from the lowest level of one or two industries. Step three, consume one iron for each tile removed. Not allowed on pottery tiles with the light bulb symbol. That That's yeah. fantastic. That's, that's what a player aid should yes. have. And I realize that for all intents and purposes, outside of the actual names of the towns, this is language independent. I get that. 
but that's not okay. It still needs a player aid that is far more usable because that is going to considerably shorten the gameplay, uh, the game length for folks if they have a usable player aid in front of them. So yeah, that, that upsets me. The fact that that's not included or the one that's included in the game, it, it it's just not usable for what it is that it yep. should be. So yeah, that, that upsets me as you can tell, but outside of that, thankfully, and I apologize that I don't have the user's name in front of me, but we'll link to it. That is a fantastic player aid that everybody, that's what should have been included with the game. Absolutely. And uh, if you get this game, Make sure you print out that. Yeah, just aid. go immediately, print it out, and and call it good. There. Yeah, I printed it onto card, and it looks really nice, and it works really well. As far as setup, teardown, and teaching, I'll be honest. Um, I don't use a whole lot of uh, inserts, and the one that comes with the game is fine. It's functional. It's whatever. It's it's a plastic insert, and it comes with a bunch of baggies. Great, use the baggies. Uh, that's that's how I keep. 99% of the games that are in my collection. As far as teaching the game, uh, basically I go and I watch Martin's teach of the game. But that said, on a serious note, I think theme does matter here. Kind of like what, what Martin says, that that is going to help cement the rules for folks. Go over uh, how uh, an overview of the game. The goal of the game is uh, victory points. How what gives you victory points, how to get those victory points. And then from there, go over the various actions that are in the game in detail and then get started. And that's pretty much how I go about teaching this game. Big picture wise. Yep. yep. Same, pretty much the same here. Um, setup wise, the most awkward part of the setup is putting all of the industry tiles on your player mat because they all have to be in the right order and the right industry and whatever. One thing I've done to make it a little bit easier is um, made some little trays to put the player mats in so that you can actually, when you pick, pick them up at the end of the game, you can keep the order the same. I just made them out of cardboard. Um, you can get 3D printed trays um, that will do the same job. And I do find that makes setup a lot easier because you can then just put them straight on there. Because um, otherwise it can be a bit frustrating. And, and tedious, yeah. Because everybody has to do it. And particularly if it's a new game, you're going, oh, what am I doing? I don't understand what's going on. And you've spent, everybody has to spend a lot of time setting up their play mat. So making that easier is certainly a nice step. Fair point, sir. All right, finally, why do we like this game? Let's face it, we both really love this game. So, okay, why? Well, first reason, to me, I I mean, I love a good economic game like this. And I, the reason I like economic games like this in general is because when they do it well, they have this interaction of cooperation and competition. Everything you do is likely to help somebody else. But everything somebody else is doing is going to likely to help you. You know, you want to you want to build an ironworks. You need to get some coal. Somebody else, oh, somebody else has made coal available, and there's a canal that's yet another person's made available to that ironwork uh, to that coal mine, so I can build my ironworks. But by doing that. I'm allowing this other person to flip their coal mine. And this is a really interesting thematic element of the game. When you build an industry, it isn't actually worth anything. In order to make it worthwhile, you if it's a raw in materials industry like a coal mine, you have to consume their coal. Once you've consumed the coal, you flip it over the other side and then it scores points. 
If it's a finished goods like a cotton mill, you have to actually sell the cotton and then you can flip it to make it score points. This is a lovely little thematic quality. Um, but in order to, um, you, when you use somebody else's coal, you're making it easier for them to flip their coal. If somebody builds a canal in the right place, it's going to make it easier to flip my cotton later on. That back and forth, every step you do is competing and cooperating. That is something I really enjoy because it's hugely interactive. Everything you do is affecting everybody else. And even if what I do doesn't necessarily help you, Martin, it's going to be helping other players. It's never, almost never going to only help myself unless the timing aspect you nail. And that is a matter of producing or creating something, whether that is an ironworks or a coal mine or possibly a brewery, and then immediately consuming it for yourself. If you can, and I got to say, doing this when it works and you time it so right, it feels so good mm. that if the market has space to be able to accept your goods immediately, you can immediately potentially place it, boom, use it all and flip it all in one action. That feels so good because yes, now I just kind of capitalize on my own. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier with efficiencies as well as being opportunistic when you see an opportunity even if it's not the exact thing that you wanted to do at the exact time well that looks pretty good that's going to make me a lot of income or it's going to score me a lot of points being able to do that and maximize and mostly only help yourself feels pretty good mm. another thing i love from this is how dynamic the game state is that between your one go and your next go, all sorts of things can change. And in order to succeed in this game, you've got to have some time of long-term plan, but you've also got to be able to adapt to changes. And people who know my other life and as a software author know that this very much ties in with much of my philosophy of planning software projects. So it, no surprise that this really appeals to me as a game. I like a broad brush long-term plan. But I've got to be able to react to all of the changes that are occurring um, within it. And that's the kind of – I don't. people talk about these game, that kind of game being very tactical. That's the word we use. I don't think that really fits the military usage of tactical. To me, it's more a sense of it's a di you have to have a dynamic strategy. You have to – because strategy in warfare is like this. You have to adapt to what the opponent is doing. Yeah, you need to have good tactics, but they can often be very static – relatively in time. Um, the dynamic element is reacting to what somebody else is doing in that broad view of the game. You know, somebody builds an ironwork, suddenly iron is cheap. Maybe I'm going to do something different to what I was planning to do because I want to take advantage of that, but I've still got my broad strategy of I want to get those cotton mills out. As they say, battle plan never uh, survives contact with the enemy, which is actually really applies here, the enemy being the other players. So what they do is going to deliberately and intentionally and dramatically impact what it is that you're going to be able to and what you're going to want to be able to do when. The game is tight economically, action efficiency-wise. The game is tight. It's not as tight as Brass Lancashire. Understood, it's more broad and a little bit more open than that. However, even with that tightness comes the ability of being able to take loans, but it's not without an opportunity cost because, well, you're taking those loans. Not only are you spending an action, but you're also spending income. 
income. Exactly. So, but it gives you flexibility to be able to do the things that you want to do. You want to, you want to have a couple of huge turns to where you're spending just oodles of money. You can do so, but it requires you to plan and it requires you to be able to take those loans, spending those actions, but it's there. So it's tight, but it's not restrictive tight. And it's also tight on the map. I mean, you're looking at where you can go. You're thinking of, well, if I, I've got to build a rail line here because I need to get into Birmingham. And if I don't get into Birmingham, I'm not going to be able to get those the industries built there that I want to build or make my way out from Birmingham to somewhere else. And you're watching what everybody else is doing in that same list. And it always feels very constricting. That's also part of a nice scale element of the games. The map decreases in size when you've got less players. So you manages to help hold that tightness together. Um, you're always in a sense of worrying what somebody else is going to do and whether, where they're going to block you. And am I going to be able to get to what I'm going to? And game? see, and both of us really like that tension of being dependent on other players doing or not doing as it were. And I realize that that's going to be a detriment to other folks that want to play in their own sandbox, but we like interaction and this yep. game has it very much in spades. Manipulation of turn order and using that manipulation of turn order being completely dependent on what players do on the on their turn and how that impacts the turn order for the next turn is exquisite. It is fantastic. The later you are in turn order, the more information you have as to what people have already done and how much money they've spent. So again, it goes back to being a a lot more dynamic or reactive to what players do. Well, okay. You know, Jess spent X amount. Martin spent X amount. Well, I had, if I want to go first, I have X minus one that I can spend. Or if maybe I want to go second so I can spend more than Jess, but less than Martin. And so you can completely manipulate where you want to be the later you are in turn order. But even so, being able to play the other players and being able to anticipate what their actions are going to be. Oh, so-and-so doesn't have a lot of money. They're probably going to take loans. Taking loans doesn't require them to spend money. So they're not going to take a lot of but are they going to immediately spend that money that they just got on loans or are they going to save it to where they go earlier in turn order? So anticipating and that whole dynamic aspect of turn order is just wonderful. Yep. And I love the way the theme goes into the play. I mean, for me, the heavier a game gets, the more I want the theme to kick in. Um, I, I'm okay with playing, you know, a medium euro something, you know, that's you know, like like we did with Quebec last um, yesterday, where it's yeah, the theme's light there, but it's okay because there's not really that much going on in the game. As there's more rules complexity, as there's more decision thing, I want a theme to try and hold it together. That's a, that's a personal desire for me, but it's an important one, and this has that theme in spades. I've talked about how the, the flipping mechanism, which you know, I don't can't think of another game actually off the top of my head that does something like that. The flipping mechanism is thematic because what it's saying is, yes, you can build your coal mine, and but until you've got the contracts with the other industries around you to use your coal, that's not a profitable business. So it ain't worth anything. I've got to actually get the contracts, which is what Selling the coal isn't meaning I'm selling lumps of coal. It's I'm selling contracts. Right. And that's all abstracted 
as a part of the theme, but that's exactly what it is that you're doing. And that's why that flipping mechanism is kind of clever in that it really does add that thematic element to the game that, okay, I need to use the iron before I can flip it. But if you actually stop and think about what you're doing, the theme dictates the action, which helps reinforce what it is that you're doing, which actually lowers the barrier to learning the game. Yeah, and then there's other things to call out. The coal transport um, system, because coal was heavy, difficult to move around, and so it ties in with the transport networks on the map. Um, you've got the, the loan mechanism. It's a very simple mechanism. You drop your income a certain amount when you take a loan out. But that's what happens when you take a loan out, right? And it uses up an action because you've got to go down the banks and do a negotiating. And put a little if you work in any kind of business, you know that those getting finance is a major part, takes up a lot of people's time and energy. And you, know, you, you can either open up a new factory and spend the effort there or just getting the financing takes a huge amount of effort and did very much so in those days. So that thematic bleeding its way into every aspect of the game – I, I, that makes the game so much more enticing for me. If I'm going to play a heavy game and it's very abstract, I don't feel excited. I don't feel getting into it. But give me a good theme, whether it's reconstructing Lisbon or um, building an industrial empire, and I'm suddenly much more engaged in what's going on. While a theme isn't, I don't feel that tie that you do, I appreciate it when it's done well, and I feel like it's done well here, provided you want to go looking for it a little bit because of the fact that, like you said, going to the banks takes time, da 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 that's that, that, even though it's abstracted, it's an action. Why is taking the loans in action? Because it takes time. So that is represented by that. So I appreciate the lengths that the theme is tied to the game, but it it doesn't hold your hand and beat you over the head with the theme, but it is clearly there. Yeah. And tying with the theme to an extent as well, and, and definitely a personal thing, I love games that take part on maps, particularly maps of the real world. Real world. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Everyone gets excited. Oh, my town is on a map. Or, you know, oh, hey, where I'm from is on a map. Or I like that. And even, I mean, this is obviously the case with Birmingham. It's where I'm from. But... Also, when you've got a map of other places of the world, that's why one of the reasons I love Steam and Age of Steam so much. Oh, I get to explore a whole in India, and, and I get to see where all these towns and cities are in India as I'm building railway lines. That has always been a deep appeal to me. So any game with a real-world map is asking for me to come. And I'm all... I'm the world's biggest five-year-old. I always want to know the why or to learn. And so these real-world maps help teach you with this stuff, right? So yeah, I, I'm right there with you when it comes to that. One thing that Brass Birmingham does, in my opinion, far better than Brass Lancashire is multiple paths of victory. There's not only iron and coal, which both games share, and there are the cotton mills that both games share. But from there, there are three other things here in Brass Birmingham that this game has. It has pottery, which is similar to cotton in a sense that it's an exported good. And it also has manufactured goods, which are represented just by crates. So it actually has three types of goods, that three different paths that people can go down to either get in each other's way with 
or not, as it were. And where those are on the board is going to dictate the type of game that that's going to be depending on what path people choose to go down. And that's not even talking about beer, which we haven't even touched on. So the fact that all of these different options are there and you can dabble, you could do a little bit here, a little bit there, which a lot of people will, especially when it comes to iron and coal, or you can just try and really go whole hog on one or two of these paths and really try and both either develop out the early ones and be able to build out the later ones worth a lot of points there. If you're able to really go lean into those. So a lot of different paths, a lot of different options in this game. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting. There's, there's been some discussion. There was a lot of discussion on board game geek when the game came out and, and a feeling that one particular strategy, um, the brick strategy, which is, um, uh, rail and iron and coal and beer um, was the thing to go for, building a lot of these things. The interesting comment that came out in the middle of this discussion was one of the designers, either Gavin or Matt, sort of chirped in and said, yeah, we got to this point about three quarters of the way through playtesting, giving a hint that there is more that you discover as you dig in deeper. And who knows, that hasn't act- – actually, it's all gone quiet in the last six months on BGG, so I don't know where that's gone. And I'm not sophisticated enough player to get that far. So let's face it, Brass gets serious. I mean, Brass Lancashire, we know people who've played that game over 100 times and are still learning the game. Um, and I suspect that could well be the case here. Um, I think there's still a lot I – th- I think there's a lot of – coming from these different paths that will lead to some interesting plays out, although we won't really know um, for a few years how that is going to play out. Right. There's also an app for Brass Lancashire, whereas there's not for Brass Birmingham, so people can experiment a lot more than playing the actual physical version. So, yeah, I I think the variability, even, even just the variability of what is deliverable where, changes the whole dynamic of the game. Mm. And I see that as only a positive here. I don't see it as the negative that some do. So yeah, big, big fan of that. Yeah, and we talked about you know playing on a map. One of the great things about playing in, on a map is one of the mechanics is network building. And network building is one of my favorite mechanics. Surprise, surprise, again, from the Steam and Age of Steam stuff. Um, and I love network building because you are building something, but you're really in the way with other people. You have to be always watching what people are doing. And this is particularly noticeable early on in the train um, era in this game, because although it's not an 18xx game, it still has a train rush. It's a different kind of train rush. It's get your railways down to the most valuable spots as soon as you can, when you're not entirely sure what the most valuable spots are going to be because the most valuable spots have the most industries and they haven't all been built yet. Um, But there is that real competition to get your train network in place early on in the rail era that is always a fun part of the game. Because that's going to be worth victory points based on the number of and the quality of the industries that are built at both ends of the various rail networks. So yeah, it's different as it should be than Brass Lancashire. Uh, but I find it I find it a lot more dynamic in this game than I do in Lancashire for the simple fact that beer mm. is a integral part of this game. Creating beer or breweries in this game, beer is required for a lot of the actions that are in this game, be it 
for various deliveries to the various ports or not ports, I, I should say, the exported areas, the, uh, the going to the offboard locations, as well as for building double rail. And whereas in the original in, in, in Brass Lancashire, it is vital that at the beginning of the rail uh, second half of the game, you need to be able to lay down double rail. It's just a must in that game. Whereas it's good in this game, but it's not a must do in this. And so being able to be the one that produces the beer, because beer also can teleport. If it's your own beer. If it's your own beer. Or to be able to be used at the various destination locations to be consumed when it's exported beer play. I feel like the introduction of breweries in this game has kind of flipped this game on its head compared to the original Lancashire. Yeah. And that's not something I appreciate so much because I don't have as much experience of Lancashire, but I do notice it particularly with this rail era thing, because in Lancashire, you really do want to do those double rail builds pretty much all the time. You've got to get the money together and hit them because you're just building more rail, even though it's a lot more expensive. In Birmingham, it's a bit more of a trade-off because yeah, at Fatford, you also have to get the beer. It means, oh, I've got to spend time getting the breweries. If the beer's not there, I've got to build the breweries. So am I better using double rail when having to do the loans and the beer required to make that? Or do I just go multiple single rails, which is slower in one sense, but I don't have to spend the actions getting more money and getting the beer into the track? So it's quicker. Exactly. It's quicker, but it's slower. And unless you're able to just, you know, use other people's beer. If if you're connected to it, you can just go ahead. Oh, you were playing. I'm sorry. And so there's... There is a bit of that negative interaction because of that, especially around specifically having using other people's beer if they're not able to build the brewery, produce the beer, and then immediately use it. So that is something to look for, but we'll we'll talk more on that in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, another thing I, I would pick out that I enjoy about this game is the victory conditions are very clearly focused. This is not a point salad game where you get points doing anything. You get points for flipping industries and building links, and the value of those links depends on the, the flipped industries that it's connected to. And those links being canals and railroads. Yeah. And it's that's very straightforward. You don't get points for a hundred different things. You get points for just two things. And I like the focus that that gives. I mean, I'm not a, a versatile point salad game. I enjoy point salad games from time to time, but I do like the fact that this gives you a very focused set of victory conditions to aim at. So this kind of flies in the face of what we had talked about earlier, like a game like Black Angel, where, okay, this is very straightforward. To be able to get points, like you said, I need to be able to flip this industry. Okay, how do I go about flipping that industry? What do I need to do? Do I need to deliver a good? Do I need to remove all the cubes that are on that tile? I know what I need to do. Mm. How I go about doing that, either via somebody else using up some of those cubes, hey, knock yourself out, great, awesome, or whether or not I do it, it's a lot more clear cut what you're trying to do. But how you go about doing that is where this game really, really just yeah. Sings. How you do about that when everybody else is trying to do the same kinds of things, maneuvering amongst everybody else's play. That's why that makes this game so wonderful. 
So, should we move on to what's not not, not to like? Have we gone through the list? Do we think? I, I, I think we've I think we've covered, if not all of it, at least a, a, a wide range of it. So, yeah, on the flip side. So, I'll be honest. There's not a ton here that Martin and I don't really like about Rasperminum, to be full disclosure. Yeah, and so what I did is I went through all the reviews and all the comments um, and I looked for things that people said they didn't like because I think in a review like this, it's good to point these things out, even if we're going to say, yeah, that doesn't apply to us. So, kick off. Uh, you can't do detailed plan turns in advance. You can't say to yourself, three, four turns in advance, this is what I'm going to be doing. And some people prefer a game that's like that, where they can plan this stuff out, and other people are going to have limited interference with what they do. Yeah, it's called multiplayer solitaire for a reason. There's nothing wrong with those games. This isn't that game. Exactly. Um, the randomness can throw things off. I mean, you can mitigate it with a wild card, certainly, and Probably I'm a little less likely to use the wild cards than I should, um, and I've got to prefer to lean on them a bit more. Um, but, I mean, they can certainly throw you. If you're just not getting the cards you need, it can certainly throw you a bit. And I, I do agree that that is a legitimate, I don't know if you want to call it a, a gripe, but it's something absolutely to be aware of that they can have an impact over the course of a single game over somebody being a little bit more efficient than you because they got better draws. That is a legitimate thing and something that needs to be taken into consideration if that's something that's likely to bother you. Um, another one on the list that I've heard people complain about is the downtime and analysis paralysis. And the thing about this game that might exacerbate that is that dynamic board state changing. You can't plan your next turn out in detail because the board state will have changed by the time it comes around to you. So if you're prone to AP, that's going to worsen it because you haven't got that planning while everybody else is moving effect to occur. Completely agree. And even if you don't have AP, there's still going to be downtime while because, yes, you can have a plan A, B, maybe a plan C. Those still might be thwarted in some form or fashion when it gets back to you. So that's something to be aware of. The fact that you you can't because it's interactive. Your the resources that you wanted, you might not be able to afford or they might not be available on your next turn. So either you're going to have to pay more money. So now all of a sudden, oh, now I got to take a loan potentially that I wasn't planning on because I could have afforded it until you went and did that. So how long this game sits on the table is directly affected by that one aspect of the game. The fact that other players are going to do things that you need or use up or whatever things that you needed to be able to do. So you're going to have to, Oh, hold on. Now I got to figure out because now I don't have the right cards to be able to do what it is that I need to do. Okay. Do I forego? Do I get wilds? Do I get loans? Whatever to where I go earlier in turn order to where you guys can't mess with me as much for the next turn, that type of thing. So it, absolutely directly impacts the length of the game the more of that there is the longer the game is and that's why i say the 60 to 120 feels like a white elephant like it, it just doesn't or it doesn't feel like a real thing at least for me because i'm not as good as others 
adjusting on the fly like that, so it takes me a little bit longer. Right, and another thing that might exacerbate that downtime is if you go first and then you spend a lot of money, so you're going last the next turn, you are actually getting effectively two turns of sitting watching everybody else do their thing before you get to go again. Right, six people, six actions in between yours. Wee! So, yeah, but that's completely player-driven. So, next on thing uh, on my list of uh, concerns I saw is the industry placement. The rules that can be a bit fiddle are a bit fiddly. I mean, you've got to yeah, you've got to have the right amount of money. You've got to have a path to coal. And you might have to buy the coal, which might mean more money. Um, there's a lot of things that can can mess up there, and uh, particularly early on, people are going to. Do something and then say, oh, I can't do that. Oh, and I'm going to have to rewind. Up. Yeah, exactly. And there's a fair bit of rewinding that will occur, particularly early. But even once you're into the game, it's easy to, oh, shoot, yes, there was. I need to buy the coal and the coal, price of coal has gone up and you've got to go roll back. And that's where the player aid really comes in handy. But yep. even with the player aid, there's still a lot of prerequisites that you have to keep track of in your head that you're like, okay, to be able to do this, do I have to have the location card or the industry card? No, or wait, any card. So there's there's kind of that memorization of the permissibility of actions and the availability of actions that exactly as you said, rolling those turns back just adds to the game length in that case. So it. I have not played a game in which people do not have to roll back some amount of actions. Yep. But then again, we're not experts, so keep that in mind. And I imagine that the majority of players that are going to be playing this are going to run into the same thing. So it's absolutely something to be patient on and just, you know what, enjoy the experience. And one trick that's worth bearing in mind if you're going to um, play this game that helps deal with that is when you are carrying out an your, your t- everybody gets two actions in their round. When you do the action, um, play the card down and put the money for that action alone on the card together with any resources that are being used with that. That way, when you roll back, you can easily see what it is you've got to roll back with. And then when you're done with both your actions, you're satisfied, you're good, everything's good, then take the resources, put them where they need to go, and then take the money and put it over there in the money spent. It it saves a shocking amount of time doing that. So there's a little tip that we have learned to do for sure. And I got that watching your stream of uh, Lancashire all those years ago. Um. The manufa- well, let's talk about the manufacturing track. Um, each of the finished industries has its own track. The cotton track is the traditional one that was there in Lancashire. It's very simple. The pottery track is a little bit strange because it's in, it uh, alternates high-value potteries with low-value potteries, but once you get the hang of it, it's not too bad. However, there is the little caveat that you do have to remember what you can and can't develop out. Yep. The manufacturing track is just plain weird. Every single step up that track, you're going, am I going forwards? Am I going backwards? This this thing is better, but that thing isn't better. And this, uh, it's just really, really weird. And some people have found that really off-putting. I'm of the feeling that I've just got to learn how to play this. Um, it's a case of... Probably if I'm going heavy on manufacturing, I still want to develop the levels probably one to five on the manufacturing track. Just clear most of them out. But there's probably nice little um, opportunistic things. I might want to do an opportunistic build here or there. And if I really get to know this game, I can do something with that track. 
And see, I see this. I agree with you and those that say it's weird and that it's it's there's no it it kind of breaks up the flow of things. It doesn't feel consistent and it feels arbitrary. I don't think it is. And I haven't played the game and delved into it enough to be able to definitively say X, Y or Z. So I'm going to defer to the guys and say, you know what? I'm going to trust their development. There's a reason why it is the way it is. So that being accepted, I love I see this as a positive because now it gives me the opportunity to explore and learn and experiment. I want that in my game. That mm. That's called replayability and gives the game depth, at least one aspect of it. I'm all for that. Um, some people have said, do we really need this two era thing? I mean, what? I mean, all you're doing in the rail era is repeating what you're doing in the canal era. So why bother with the canal era? Just start with the rail era. Now, for me, that is an assault on a core thematic element of the game. One of the things that most appealed to me to brass just reading about it was the fact that you build the canal network and have to wipe it. Don't out you take away my two phases? Exactly. <laughs> um, and I do think the canal phase does do important things in setting things up. You positioning where you position your high level industries in the canal phase is really important. Developing so that you can get higher level industries out in the canal phase so they score twice because you score at the end of each era. That can be a really important part of the game. But not everything scores twice. Exactly. And the reason is all your uh, level one tech, if you will want to call it that, goes away at the end of the canal phase. So if you decided to develop, or I'm sorry, if you decided to build it, it's going. You're, it's only going to score once. But if you choose to develop through it when possible, which you cannot do with the first level pottery, but for others... It will stay out there and score you twice over the course of the game. So, again, there's that push and pull of efficiency of actions. Is it worth it to develop through or is it better to just go ahead and build this out now? And it gets it off my board so that now I can go into the twos, the threes, so on and so forth. Layers of decision. I welcome that. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, and some people just don't like building something and then having it wiped out. But to me, this is one of the charms of the game. It's one of that really special things that I've not seen any other game do. And on that note, anybody that's listened to the show or has watched the show for any number of any amount of time realizes that I like rough edges to a game. I don't want a game polished down to where everything is perfect and everything is just intuitive and just is perfect. I don't like that. I feel like having those two distinct phases is a rough edge. I'm not saying that it's underdeveloped. Quite the contrary. I think it's developed down perfectly to where it is. But it's not repeating the same thing. It's not just for the theme, but it wipes out the canals. But now you already have some of the infrastructure already built, which is going to do even better with the rails later on. I, that's one of those rough edges that, yeah, I absolutely am a, am drawn to with this game. And one way of looking at it, it's setting you up from for an asymmetric starting position for that rail era. Because, you know, do I build a big, big load of money up so that I can hit the rails really fast? Do I perhaps stack some coal or some beer up so that I can get that way? All of these kind of things gives everybody a different start position as they fly into that train rush. Right. Uh, so again, I see it as a positive, not a negative. 
And this is perhaps um, only going to bother someone like me, but some people are concerned about some of the historic anomalies on this game board. Um, Coventry has a pottery in it. Coventry is not known for pottery. Oh, you were you were adamant. <laughs> Coventry does not have pottery. <laughs> yep. Pottery was all up in Staffordshire. You had Stoke and Stafford and Stone, which doesn't have a pottery, um, because that area is called the Potteries. Um, Burton it was famous for beer. Uh, only one of its two slots of beer, and there are two slots in Utoxeter. Well, okay, Utoxeter had a brewery. Everywhere had a brewery. But Burton was the place that was really known. So why has Utoxeter got the two sets of barrels? I mean, no, the reason this is done, obviously, is because they need to balance the game. Yeah, gameplay for You've got to have at least one pottery down in the south. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really difficult. And in fact, there are more potteries in the north than in the south. Um Utoxeter is this really interesting town that can only be reached by rail, but it's not reachable at all during the canal era. That makes it a really interesting play, both during the canal and the rail phase. Um, so these things all make sense within the fact of you're trying to actually make a game that works. Um, and yeah, historical anomalies, oh, come on, this is a game primarily, not a history lesson. You got anything else? Well, the last one is, does the world need another brass? Because there is brass Lancashire. Should have this been just an expansion at most, as opposed to a separate game? Um, and that's something we'll talk about as we compare it to Lancashire, I think. That's when we will really hit on that. Well, actually, why don't we, why don't we roll into it? Okay, so the question about comparing this to Lancashire. And it's a big deal for this comparison. I mean, Lancashire is a highly regarded... It's a Hall of Fame game. Absolutely. Yeah. Lancashire, or the original brass, as it were, uh, has stood the test of time. It is shown to be an amazing game in and of itself. So do we need Birmingham? Well, um... I I have my... I'm biased because I come from here, but... One thing I did do, and this is a few months ago now, I did a little informal poll on the Heavy Cardboard Slack channel, and I said to people, do you prefer one game or the other, or do you think it's about equal? And all of those three votes came in about the same. Now, a slight edge to the people who said that both games are about the same. Um, I've not played Lancashire enough yet to really compare them, but they feel... Similar but different enough that I like to have both in my collection. And the system is so brilliant. I want more of it. For me, I compare it to Age of Steam and how there are variations of Age of Steam. You change some things, make it your own. And this being a standalone game, I'm totally on board with it. Brass Lancashire, everyone says, is far tighter than this game. Whereas this one has more variability and more pass to victory. Those are two different games in my book, and they're trying to do two different things. I absolutely believe that A, they are very different games, and B, there's a place for both of them. Yep. 
Um, one of the interesting questions is if you're thinking of getting into brass, which way should you go first? And that's a tricky one. At the moment, I'm still leaning to actually Birmingham's the better way in. I think the multiple paths is probably a bit easier to work with. The rules might be a touch more complicated, but they'll go away after the first couple of games. There was a nice summing up about this in the Shut Up and Sit Down review where they said towards the late period of the Lancashire game, you're struggling because you're trying to figure out what can I do? While in the late period of Birmingham game, you can see two or three things that you can do, but you're not sure which one to do. And most people will prefer that second decision point because there's nothing worse in the game than being stuck and you can't see anything that you can do. So another, and this is totally anecdotal, and this is not scientific in the least, but in my very rough guesstimation on what direction people have gone or what they should go or anything like that. Here's what I've seen. Those that like Lancashire that have played Lancashire first don't see a need for Birmingham. Those that play Birmingham first enjoy Lancashire as well. Take it for what it's worth. Yeah, and and that's also a factor of of a lot of the people who have played Lancashire have played it that hundred times. They're the really really keen players, and uh, I can see why they're they're going to really notice the differences in ways that those of us who've only played a dozen or so times are not going to notice. And let's face it, the overwhelming majority of folks that are going to hear this are probably going to be more in that camp than the the former camp. Yep. All right, moving on to scalability. So the game plays two to four players, and the two things that mainly scale mechanically on this game are the off-board locations, be it Nottingham, Warrington, et cetera, et cetera. Those locations, some of those are going to be out of play, as well as this, when we mentioned the color coding of the cards, some of those areas are going to be out of play as well, based on lower than four players. In your experience, Feel-wise, how would you say this game differs? I think it feels remarkably similar at two, three, or four. Um, I really do feel I'm playing the same game. In comparison, say, something like PAX Premier 2nd Edition, where they're brilliant games at two and at four, but they feel very different. Here, I really do feel you're playing very much the same game. There's always a difference between it being zero-sum or not, um, but that seems weaker effect here than in many of the games that I've played. And just like any game when you're talking scalability and difference between number of players where there's a lot of interaction, obviously there's more planning that can take place, more more long-term planning, and there's less. You don't need to adjust as much in a two-player game than you would in a four because there's less actions in between your actions. And a lot of times it's going to alternate, or at worst, you're going to have two actions between yours in a two-player game. So in that rationale, you're going to need less flexibility there than you would in a higher player count game. Overall, though, I think it plays great two, three, and four. Yeah, Yeah, I've really enjoyed it at all player counts. Which Um, I think is a hallmark of a great game. The fact that it, okay, if it says it plays across these player counts, and this player counts fine, but it really shines at this, I think it's great at two, three, and four. So legit good job on that. So moving on to your favorite bit, the comments from BGG, read expertly by our host. However, 
I don't know that I can say that about this instance of this, in all honesty. For the first time, I really didn't enjoy this exercise that is me going through and mining the comments, this and that. And here's why. Almost every one of them is done in comparison to Brass Lancashire. There's room for that. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not looking at this as a comparison to Brass Lancashire in a vacuum. I want to know how Brass Birmingham does as a game. And I hope we've done that. But I will say it was really difficult to find comments on BGG that don't that aren't as comparisons between the two. So take that for what it's worth. So that said, here we go. In my opinion, an unnecessary, complicated version of Brass Lancashire. Oh, it's your opinion. You have the right to it. You're just wrong. Like Lancashire, but not Lancashire. Okay. Yeah. Spot on, actually. Yeah. Okay. Why do I simultaneously feel so dumb and so smart playing this game? That's me in most games, actually. So, yeah, I that, that also checks out, I feel like. Yep. Except perhaps without the smart bit. <laughs> for me. <laughs> I couldn't say no to the art. For a long time, I resisted Brass Birmingham. The theme didn't interest me. The gameplay didn't interest me. I never played a Martin Wallace game, so the name didn't compel me. But that art. There aren't many games with that aesthetic. I caved and purchased it. Then I played it and realized I was wrong. The theme was interesting. The gameplay was fun, tight, and required players to be both strategic and tactical. No two games felt the same, probably because my group and I were getting better and better with each play. There's always a moment when everyone is literally standing around the table, brow scrunched in concern, breath held as someone takes their turn. Brass Birmingham deserves all of its accolades. It will absolutely have a place on my shelf and on my table. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That works. This doesn't improve brass. It is different, a little more unforgiving in some areas, looser and more open in others. It's both friendlier, adding more variety, more complicated with the additional with the addition of pottery and manufacturing as point income options and beer as a resource, but also more cumbersome for new players. Now you have to remember how coal, iron, and beer work, and they're all different. Birmingham definitely adds more. I'm just not convinced the game is better for it. There are plenty of euros with more. I like the constraint of the original brass. I'd still play Birmingham, but I'm happy with Lancashire. Okay, I, I I won't argue with any of that. And again, a lot of these are in comparison too, which I it's fair. But anyway, yep. This game is a classic for a reason, and the reimagining modernized it where it was needed. It has some of the biggest highs and lows I've seen in a game where you execute execute a plan and it feels amazing. And when someone takes advantage of a weakness you've left exposed, it feels awful. The brilliance of it, how all of it is interconnected and how you can help people even when trying to hurt them because of how flipping tiles works. There can be cooperation, backstabbing, and mutually assured destruction all within this simple economic system. 
What I was most positively surprised about is how simple each individual action is. The actual turn-to-turn play is easy and fast. The complexity and interaction comes from the long-term impact of these moves. The hand of cards limit your actions, which I think is important. It reduces AP and keeps the game focused. As someone that hates when turn order matters in a game, I actually like how manipulating it is an important mechanism of this one, because if it screws you, it's your own fault. The only bad part of the game is that you need the right mood and group with which to play it. It can be mentally draining and really mean, which most people won't appreciate. My wife, for example, hated it because of the low lows negated all the fun that the high highs had for. Again, fair points. Yep. Every game needs the group that will work with it. Agreed. Brass has everything I want in a game. Tense, exciting, and competitive through the whole game despite the three-hour playtime. I love that it's high-end strategy but requires you to always reevaluate the board and make important tactical plays, whether it be building iron and coal industries to make some quick cash and points or selling cotton once beer becomes available. I also love the high-player interaction. Lots of aggressive route denial, beer stealing, and opportunities to leech off your opponent's industries. None of it felt mean, though, because your opponent usually benefits in some way as well. My favorite kind of interaction. I think that sums it up pretty well. Kind of runs the gamut there. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. So I've, I and I uh, pre I also as I was going through those, I was looking for any sharp, juicy ones, and none particularly kept my eye. So I thought oh, Edward's obviously better at spotting the sharp. Juicy uh, no, ones. or maybe there just weren't a whole lot that. Again, I tried to find a lot that didn't that were on the negative side that didn't do it as a negative in comparison to Lancashire. Yeah, and there's not a lot out there. So again, I would recommend that everybody tries them both. And find out which one you like more. That said, this did win the Golden Elephant Award for 2018 for a reason. So you can kind of deduce where both of us are going to fall on this. And when we look at the rankings on BGG, this will probably be the first Golden Elephant winner to get into the top 10. Really? I it's never ju- knew that. It's ju- I well, no, just- I didn't realize that none of the others. <laughs> I don't think any of the others have, have they? It, I Magnet don't know. never got up that high. Madeira never got up that high. Um, I'm trying to think of the others. I don't think any of the others got actually to that point. Interesting. That never occurred to me. Huh. Interesting. So that said, are you ready for your summary, Indeed good sir? Indeed I am. I'm going to quote from what I wrote on my, webs- on my board game page on my website, since that's the easiest way to come up with a summary since I've already done it. Brass is an economic game set during the Industrial Revolution. Each round, players place industries on a map of part of Britain, connect them with canal or rail links, take loans and sell goods. Victory points come from those industries that have found a market and from links to those successful industries. A striking feature of this game is the interplay of competition and cooperation. I want to build a new ironworks, but to do that I need coal, which I get from your coal mine over canal links owned by someone else. By taking your coal, I allow you to flip that mine, allowing it to generate income and score victory points for you. But later you may use my iron and flip that for my benefit. This is a complex game, and like such games I suggest playing it twice in quick succession. You'll probably struggle on your first play, but the second will go more smoothly. There is a lot of depth to this game, combined with a strong sense of its theme, delivered in a stellar production. 
It deserves its reputation as one of the best heavy economic games you can get. What he said. No, I won't do that. We first reviewed Brass early in season one. I think it was episode 11. That's 128 episodes ago. And my co-host at the time, Tony, and I both were really, really smitten with Brass, as it was known then, Brass Lancashire. I do believe that had the Golden Elephant Award existed when Brass originally came out, it probably would have won it then too, because I think it's that good of a design. Brass Birmingham has come along, and I think it's taken what is an amazing design and made it different. I don't know that it's better. I don't know that it's worse. It's different. But if it's either of those things, it's not going to be at such a degree that it doesn't make this an amazing, special game. What I would consider a Hall of Fame game. I do think it's pretty incredible that there are two games of similar name, similar lineage that can scratch different itches while also doing the same similar things. I think there's room in your collection. If you enjoy the types of games, those economic games that we enjoy, I think there's room in a collection for both of these. Both of them will permanently be in my collection. Depends on what I'm in the mood for. Do I want a super tight, heavy economic game? Then maybe I lean towards Lancashire. But if I want a maybe a, a little bit less tight, but similar feel with a little bit more variability, as well as a little bit more pass to, to victory, then I am absolutely will grab Brass Birmingham. But on its own, I think this is an absolute special gem that plays amazing across all player counts. I don't know what more you want in a Hall of Fame game than something like Brass Birmingham. So that said, we rate on a one to six scale. One is burn it with fire. Six being, well, it's a Hall of Fame. Everything else being in between those two. No half numbers, no hedging, no nothing, no rounding. Or I guess if it's rounding, it's rounded down. So three and a half, three and three quarter stars, that's a three. So just FYI. That said, it's pretty clear where I rated this, having it A, won the Golden Elephant Award for 2018, and B, in my summary, I just mentioned Hall of Fame game. Yes, I have this as a six. Is it perfect? No, there's a there's a fair bit of downtime, and there's that randomness of the cards, and it can be frustrating as all get out when people repeatedly make my actions of what I planned on doing unavailable. But at least it's the players doing it and not the game doing that. I love this game. It's an absolute six for me. So there you have it. So, Mr. Fowler, how do you see it? I was kind of nervous when the game finally arrived. I mean, I'd been anticipating this game for such a long time. I mean, the fact that Lancashire came out in 2008, 
and I'd not played it and I was kind of missing the fact that I kind of not had the opportunity to play it and always wanted to. And then the whole drama of, of uh, the Roxley thing and it, the Kickstarter took longer than expected because the iron clays were so difficult to manufacture. It seemed to take ages and I was kind of worried, is it going to live up to the hopes I have for this game? And then you throw in the fact that it's where I'm from. So it even increases me to want to like this game. And I am just so relieved that it absolutely matches those hopes. Um, it is just such a good game. And um, I really enjoy it. Um, I talked about that sixth spot on the desert island. It's lotting in there. In fact, if the bag was smaller, I would think it would be brass that would be one of the last to be removed. It is such a great game, and I'm just so pleased that I can play a game over uh, the world that I quite happily left, I must point out. I mean, I, there's a reason I no longer live there, but uh, you you have this fondness for something that is home, right? Totally. So, yeah, I, I, I gather that would be a... That's a six, yes. I, I gather, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so there you go. There is our review of Brass Birmingham. So congratulations again to Matt, Gavin, and Martin for winning the Golden Elephant Award. You guys ought to actually, you know, come and get your award at some point uh, at a meetup. We should do that. I know you guys aren't going to Essen this year, unfortunately, but I digress. Yeah, come to Wakefield. You can actually play it with us. There you go. That'd be fantastic. Show us how it should be played properly. We do do one of these expert streams. Gauntlet dropped. There you go. All right. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Uh, I had a lot of fun, and it's it's kind of funny to me that that Martin Fowler is a part of my game group. I just see him as he's just a British dude that we enjoy each other's company, hang out, have the occasional cocktail, share a meal, and play games. But I'm thrilled that you wanted to do this tonight. So I really, really appreciate this, man. Anytime. I'm happy to talk about games. All right. So, uh, yeah, you want to tell folks how they can get in touch with you or reach out to you on social media, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. Um, my homepage is martinfowler.com. As I said, it's all full of software stuff, so you may not want to deal with that. My Twitter feed, my handle is martinfowler. Again, most of what I post are links to things about software stuff, but I do post all the links to the streams that I'm on and any other game-oriented stuff that comes to mind. So you will occasionally get a bit of that. Um, and that's the main ways of getting hold of me. All right. And for me, uh, at Heavy Cardboard on Twitter, uh, heavycardboard.com for the website, and hopefully this podcast or your favorite podcast uh, uh, app out there. If you guys liked it, let me know. Give us feedback. Tell somebody. Um, as, as we like to say, or it kind of stole from Dan Carlin, if you guys enjoyed the podcast and you think it's worth a buck or two, consider heading over to Pledge HC and supporting the show over there. If not, tell a friend, spread the word, whether that's online or in person. Tell them about the podcast. Tell them about the YouTube channel, which if you Google Heavy Cardboard YouTube, it'll come up there. Or you can go to YouTube.com forward slash Heavy Cardboard Vids and you'll get it there. And I should say, I mean, the Slack channel that patrons get to uh, access is a really good source of information and discussion on board games. I've uh, learned a lot from it, and I really enjoy the interactions. And it's a remarkably fr – for someone who's been involved in internet discussion groups since the 1980s, 
And I have long got to be very cynical about them. But this one is what discussion groups I'd always hoped to be. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty amazing collection of folks from around the world. And if you're awake, uh, somebody else is in there that you can talk to as well because it's worldwide. It's pretty cool to, to see the conversations that go on in there. So there you go. That's it. That's a wrap on episode 139. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode 140, which will cover something we'll figure that out thanks everybody for listening and thanks again to martin for uh hanging out for the evening uh have a safe trip i know you're about to uh uh fly to your next uh next meeting so take care and we'll see you uh at the game group uh when you get back i certainly will be here all right and thanks everybody for listening take care y'all have a great rest of your week do something nice for one another be kind to one another out there and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks take care everybody 